Okay, so for anyone who may not have been here yesterday or, or who may have forgotten, my name is Joshua Green. I'm the Research Manager for the Convergence Culture Consortium. I'm a postdoc here at, here at CMS. Um, and uh, along with Sam Ford, we, we got this thing together. And I'd just like to take this opportunity to thank everyone um, for, for showing up. It's been a really good event. It was a good day yesterday. Um, we had a wonderful first panel this morning, and we're looking forward to, to, to two more great panels. Um, what we have uh, to do now is to move into a discussion about advertising, basically advertising and convergence culture. Um, we have five panelists, and I will let them introduce themselves, but I will tell you just quickly who they are. Um, sitting on the panel today is uh, Mike Rubenstein from the Barbarian Group, uh, Barbara Shetty uh, for Hill Holiday, Tina Wells uh, from Buzz Marketing Group, uh, Faris Jacob from, oh, it says Digital Ninja, no, from Naked Communications, <laughs> uh, and, and Bill Fox from uh, Fidelity. Um, what I would like to do is, is let the panelists introduce themselves. So, Mike, we might start with you because you're in my line of sight. Sure. Um, and I'd like you just to say a few words about what keeps you up at night. <laughs> um, I actually sleep really well these days. <laughs> uh, um, no, I guess the, the biggest thing is just for us uh, at the Barbarian Group, the, the speed at which uh, the company is growing and how we're sort of trying to manage uh, an increasing number of employees with, you know, this idea of being able to be really, you know, nimble and, uh, you know, constantly sort of switching gears and trying new things, but also becoming larger and, you know, sort of needing to move this mass of minds uh, much faster, you know. Or what seems to be much faster, I guess, is the big thing. Uh, yeah, that and whatever video game I'm stuck with. <laughs> uh, hi, I'm Bill Fox, and uh, I manage. I have, I guess, essentially two hats uh, at Fidelity. We have an in-house advertising agency, and I manage that um, that complex. In addition to our uh, relationships with our external agency partners as well, too. Um, I guess what keeps me up at night is just, you know, I work in financial services. I guess you can pick me out of the, the Fidelity one, the other one that's got the blazer on here. This, um, what keeps me up at night in this world is just how do we keep on, keep on top of how to, serving the needs of which is such a, just a diverse group of customers when you know, folks like yourselves, young folks coming into the mix, how do they figure things out? Right up to um, you know, folks like I like in my mother, 77 year olds who are just trying to figure out what it's all about from a media perspective, from a financial perspective, and how do you just keep it, you know, how do you keep it real? How do you keep the language right? How do you keep up with the language changes? How do you make sure that you do it in a way? Because it's, a, it's our responsibility to make sure we make some kind of connection. I mean, it's good for the company, it's good for us, it's also good for our customers. And um, each day there's something different. And how do we somehow keep on the curve, not ahead of the curve, but how to keep on top of the, how to keep on the curve is what keeps me up at night. Cool. Um, hello, I'm Faris. And yeah, I'm the digital ninja at um, <laughs> Naked Communications. I'm called the digital ninja because um, that's what happens when you let geeks pick their own job titles. <laughs> but um, I, I guess nominally at least my job is to pretend to understand how the impact of interaction works on what we all do. Um, what keeps me up at night is usually the internet, but um, in a professional capacity, um, it's sort of trying to understand how we fit in and 
in what's becoming, I suppose, post you know the Wired thing about the attention economy, a live attention market, how we can earn the allocation of some attention in order to sell people some stuff on the back of it, um, which is getting harder and harder. Hi, I'm Tina Wells from Buzz Marketing Group. And I guess what really keeps me up at night is figuring out what teens, tweens, and young adults want um, from marketers. It's really the problems I solve every day for my clients. So it's really getting to the heart of why do 10-year-old girls love high school musical? You know, why are brat dolls not cool anymore? So it's, it's understanding that and, you know, going to Pixo and making a page of my own to understand why this is a global phenomenon. So that's pretty much what I get to do. Hey, I'm Bob Aschetti. I am the Chief Media Officer at Hill Holiday. And uh, the, the way, we've, uh, <clears throat> the way uh, we've kind of structured things at Hill Holiday, it's, it's, not a, it's not a common way to do things, but what we've, we've done with the media organizations, we, we've got this full-service media offering that a lot of agencies have kind of split out, so that's a buying of TV time and print and out of home and all of that. But what we've tried to do is also incorporate um, digital, social thinking into that group. And so instead of having kind of separate silos of, of um, what are different ways you might connect with the consumer, um, we've tried to think about it as, as, um, as one thing and, and look at the trade-offs between um, all of the opportunities. So I, I guess I would say the, uh, the um, what keeps me up at night question, um, it, it's really kind of managing that whole uh, uh, transformation. It's not keeping me up at night in a, in a bad sense, actually, because it's kind of there's lots of cool things that we could do, and it's it's kind of um, you know picking the path that's going to um, uh, help you know a big agency with a lot of lot of um, uh, existing clients kind of kind of manage the, the transition to where we're where we're headed, and and part of that is also uh, talent. I, I think um, recruiting um, ninja-like people. Is uh, is a is a critical part of kind of what we need to do, and we've we've had some uh, success uh, so far. But uh, but uh, but talent is a, another thing we think about a lot. So one of the things that we've talked about, it, it seems across all of the panels, is is uh, something about value and a, a proposition of value. So I'd like to start this discussion about about convergence by asking you, how, how do you think that convergence is affecting the value of different advertising sites? Because one of the things that it does do is, is, is to get them to interact with each other and in some senses bring them together. But in the same sense, it also proves the real distinction between sites where you can place advertising or the places where you can you know, participate in a discussion with, with people. So I just wanted to, to open by, by asking how does, how does convergence change the value of different sites for advertising? Um, well, I, I came from a media background, a media agency as well. And so the function of media agencies was essentially to broker space. And when I came into the business, people were just realizing that anything was space, that media could be anything, anything that's a vector for an idea, you could slap a brand on and then sell to somebody uh, like us, I guess. Um, I think the way it changes is that that kind of thought um, is less welcome now because the idea of invasion and what has been called urban spamming, if you like, sort of ambient invasion of, of media and brands is kind of less welcome because people have mm. a presumption of control over their experience of stuff. Mm. And so kind of, you're right, it does connect things. And I think the internet provides a, a backbone to other forms of communication because it's always there. But um, in some ways it diminishes the value of individual sites because there's just 
theoretically an infinite array of them, and so you know, it fragments things across them. Yeah, I think, I think that's definitely true. And I think also from, from the brand side, people are becoming more, more protective of where, where they sort of want to find themselves. Um, you know, like we hit this problem a lot where a lot of people want, they want video, some sort of video component, and they're like, well, we want a lot of people to see it. We want it on YouTube. But then, you know, YouTube sort of associates that video with other videos. And like, well, we don't want to be seen with this other stuff, you know, that we find unsavory or whatever. Um, and so there's, there's a lot of trouble finding middle ground where people feel safe to sort of to act and to participate, but also can protect themselves still. Yeah, I concur. I mean, when you think of your brand, you want to make sure that it is protected in the light that you want it to be. And when you kind of abdicate control a bit, if it starts going into other sites and this convergence really does, um, it can dilute it. It seems like sometimes it dilutes, then it builds it up again, and it's, it's very fluid. And from one moment to the next, um, there's such change that can take place based on where you know, where you find yourself. And you want it to get out there because in some ways it just creates that kind of viral aspect of things. Where you're, you, you, it's more buzz, but at the same time it can turn, as Mike was saying, that negative buzz can come in there as well too. So um, it's when you mention the word value, it's, it's, that's a very hard term to really reckon with because the value can change so demonstrably from one it, within the same day, within the same, in, within the same hour, based on, a, on just how it gets turned and twisted and moved and then shot off into some other place. So um, I don't know that you can really put a, uh, you can't put a, it's hard to put the word value to, in, in, in that kind of context for me because it, it's, it doesn't seem to stay you know, solid enough for enough time to be able to put that uh, put a value quotient onto it. What the others think. I, I tend to disagree a bit. Um, just because I think that what we're used to doing is saying we need X amount of eyeballs and we want to go to a YouTube and get them versus saying, do I want to reach a 13 to 17 year old girl? Okay, I know she's watching Gossip Girl, so now I have to go to the CW TV. And now I know that she's on gloss.com. So I think what we're finding is to get that same number of eyeballs we have to now maybe look at 20 different places to go get the same thing versus going to one. And I think that when you talk about brand equity, what you're now looking at is that these shows are, are now brands. Like if you think of how kids talk, when I grew up it was, I watched Dawson's Creek on the WB, where now the shows are brands. Gossip Girls is brand, whether it's consumed on iTunes, whether it's consumed, you know, however they're consuming it. So I think what you're going to see more of is brand compatibility. So it's not, even when you're talking about artists, if, if, you know, such and such a brand is sponsoring Justin Timberlake's world tour, it's now Justin as a brand and who he reaches. And so I think that it's more of a compatibility issue and looking at what does our brand stand for, what are our value propositions, and then looking at these different channels that we have now is what are theirs? Because I definitely see the dangers. I mean, you look at a, a Dove campaign and they want to turn it over to consumers to now start blogging and writing messages and when does it get to the point where is this appropriate, is it not, how do you monitor it? And, and I think that's probably the biggest challenge is you've got the P&Gs of the world that we serve, you know, AccuView, we had a huge back to school campaign and, and the big thing was J&J &J couldn't have it live on a J&J &J owned website because what if something happens that we can't control? 
So I think that that's probably the biggest challenge is figuring out what are my brand attributes and what are, are these different channels brand attributes and how do we find a way where we match? I think the, uh, <clears throat> the, the value word is, is really, it, it really is uh, key here. We, we've had this whole uh, kind of military industrial complex that's grown up around the kind of single dimension of, of, of value. Um, and so, you know, you've heard it in a lot of the panels during this, this last um, day and a half. You've, you've heard about, um, about the dominance of Nielsen and the, and the notion of, of, of just um, big audiences for impression delivery as, the, as kind of the singular uh, measure of value. And, and it's, you know, th there's lots of different kind of um, uh, ways of thinking that start to say, well, you know, it's, it's, it's more than that. It's, there's a, um, there's a, uh, a, a difference kind of on the spectrum from an impression to a behavior that it, it'd be better to really connect with somebody as opposed to superficially connect with somebody. But the truth of it is when you're in, the, um, in an over-scheduled over uh, world where everyone's trying to make decisions about lots of things very quickly, they look for very common vocabulary that you can quickly kind of say, okay, this is better than that. And it gets it gets um, it gets dumbed down very quickly. You know, I, I I use this example sometimes, but it's it's um, it's very common to go into a client discussion where you can have a um, you can have a uh, half an hour conversation about how you're going to spend six million dollars on primetime television, and it it goes around this notion of okay, we're going to get these. Um, uh, 42 spots uh, in this primetime schedule on these programs. What do you think? And it's easy for people to say, okay, great. And then you can talk about a, um, a social media effort um, that uh, is uh, a little bit more complicated. You can have an hour and a half long discussion that is not conclusive um, to spend you know, uh, $200,000 um, to, to build something. So. Um, that, that notion of kind of a vocabulary around value and, and um, a set of, uh, uh, you know, how you talk about it, I think, is really critical. I think what part of this, part of this, this perhaps disagreement about this, this proposition of value or, or how you can value something might come from the fact that, I mean, each five of you, each of you, or everyone here is working in a, in a relatively different kind of agency or, or, or with a relatively different set of clients. So I'm wondering if, if each of you could give us an overview of, of a recent success that, that, that you've had that, that kind of gives us an insight in, into the sort of work that you do, but also the way that you, you have to address these questions of control um, and, and context, really, which seem to be kind of uh, important at the moment um, because they seem to be the two things that are, that are in, in shift. And Mike, I'm going to throw it back at you because line of sight. Yeah, sure. Um, <laughs> I guess our, our most recent big one was uh, Kashi.com um, for like, you know, healthy snacks and such. Uh, a lot of people do, you know, and uh, I, yeah, I have mixed feelings about that, but, um, <laughs> you know, it's, it was a, it was a challenge for us and I think a success just because it was much, much different than anything we tried just uh, on the general scale. Um, it's a different kind of site for us in general. Um, but I think also it was really interesting because they have this this sort of fan base of their brand, like these people who are really enthusiastic about Kashi and Kashi products, and people who have that light in their eyes that you just had, you know, it's like, yeah, that's great. And 
you know, they were really anxious to be able to hear from these people and have this sort of, you know, open it to, you know, this dialogue with people who had something to say about their product. Sorry, Kashi so, products are? They're, um... I'm foreign, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> they're real into, like, whole grains. I think there's seven of them. Uh, <laughs> and the rumor has it. Yeah. <laughs> I, uh, they're very excited about every single one of them. Um, <laughs> they have a fascinating array of products that usually taste kind of like food. Um, so it's a bit it's, like soy like It's really good for you, apparently. It's just it's tough. I mean, like, so this is a farmer client? <laughs> no, no. It is now. <laughs> no, there are people who are like, we, we get boxes of it and it's gone. Like, it's great. It's just, it's a little rough on me. It's not my diet, you know. <laughs> um, no, but they're, they're really cool because they're really open to like, you know, figuring out what people like and don't like and, you know, having that sort of discussion with people about, you know, their own stuff, which is, it's interesting because usually, you know, something like that takes a lot of policing and, like, people, they never want to hear the bad news. Um, and, I'm not, you know, not to say that anything goes with these guys, but, like, it's really cool to see an enthusiastic group of people playing nicely with, you know, a high-quality product that they're excited about. And, you know, to have something like that where there is this back and forth that's going well is, it's really nice to see, I think. One of the, um, within, of course, Fidelity Financial Services, I think one, one interesting example we have is with our more recent um, summit that we have is this Active Trader Summit. These are folks who, you know, trade like hell all the time. I mean, they're, and they're, it's a whole subculture of these people, and they, some make their living at it, some just do it as a hobby, but there's just this, this, this turnover. It's a, it's a whole different language, a whole different way to approach these folks. Um, I think it's an interesting example of convergence uh, when you look at media because the way we get these people to come to these seminars is through direct mail and through email. We send it off to them, we, uh, and then they, of course, sign up online. They come. They're, they're constantly you know, on their monitors. They're constantly looking for the latest and greatest new technology. They're constantly looking for different types of research. They're constantly looking for an edge in terms of how they can understand the marketplace, marketplace dynamics more, um, more intently. Uh, we bring them together. They, they, they have these conversations at these summits. We've got you know, the speakers there. They, they love the dialogue face-to-face. -face. They love to get online while they're face-to-face. Um, it, it's, it's, you know, multitasking on steroids, the way these folks work. And yet they want, they, they blog, and, and Fidelity, we'd love to be able to take advantage of what they talk about quite a bit, but then we have to be very careful about what we use in terms of what comes in and what we put out because we're such a legislated, we're so restricted in terms of what we can do for, legally because then it comes across as Fidelity advice and you can't tell people you know, then it comes across as something that you're advocating if somebody's got these stock tips or if they've got these uh, particular area that they want folks to focus on. And so it's, it's been interesting to see. This is where we have, um, it's, it's quite a dynamic that we have in place. And it's been very interesting because we can bring this culture together. And it's, and it's been a wonderful case study. And yet um, it's also a case study and just is in, in, in how much we can't bring the cultures together 
and diffuse that information without really looking over our shoulder to make sure that it's not, that the information is not taken out of context such that gets our company in trouble because of, um, not because we wouldn't want folks to be able to share information and give advice, but just to make sure that the Fidelity name is not associated with that advice because it may not be the right advice for a particular customer given the particular financial situation that they're in. A you know, 50-year-old person that's got you know, $20,000 should not be investing all of their money in some new you know, startup and if they're looking to retire in a few years and it's heavily legislated by the, the Security Exchange Commission because you're giving them bad advice where you need to, they need to make that advice, they need to take and, and do what they want to do on their own. So um, I guess bringing all this conversation back, it's, it's been a wonderful, um, it's a wonderful case study in terms of looking at it from direct marketing to all of this information getting out there, information exchange, real-time information exchange, and then just how much can come together and go back out again. Um, I think um, one of the things I try and help my clients sort of um, abandon is this notion of control. Um, it's never been true at all, and it's distinctly untrue now, and it's also kind of not very helpful for the stuff that I work on. Potentially it's different if you have legal sort of requirements. But um, I think it's more about contribution and I think reappropriation of the brand texts, to use kind of the terminology of the conference, um, make things more interesting and more valuable to uh, the advertisers and to the audience. Um, I'm kind of loath to do this because it's very ad wanky, um, but I have a kind of video thing, case study thing. So, I mean, like, it's up to you. You don't have to watch it. I can just talk about it, but we could watch it. I don't know. Okay, cool. Um, it's, uh, <laughs> it's some work, and this is kind of slightly cheating as well, and I have to sort of caveat that. It's some work we did with the broadcaster, and so the product we're trying to engage people with is inherently kind of engaging. Um, uh, but um, it's, yeah, well, yeah, there's a Skins short letter, that one. So this is a program on E4 in the UK that we helped launch. Um, Hang on, it's just... Uh... Oh, it needs audio. So um, that was kind of the short version, because it's you know, shorter. But um, it, in some ways, it was really easy for that kind of activity to work with that kind of property, because um, Skins is a program which is written by kids. They have one kind of supervising script editor, but the rest is all written by sort of under 21-year-olds, 24-year-olds or something. So 
allowing people to engage with it made a lot of sense. Um, in terms of the sense of control, kind of letting the ads be made essentially by the, you know, the fans on MySpace. At the time, MySpace was quite big. Now, less so, I think. But um, I let people reimagine the logo, for example, was, was something that a brand finds very difficult usually to do because their identity is wrapped up in this sort of crystalline design structure. When, of course, that isn't true, as I think Google aptly demonstrates with its you know, um, doodles. Um, so that kind of stuff, I think, letting go of control and kind of letting people finding gaps where people can interact with the content you're creating and letting them do what they want with it um, seems to have more resonance, I think. Okay. Um, so our case study is a little bit more traditional. Um, I started talking a little bit about our work with AccuView, and for the last three years, we've been a lead sponsor for the MTV Video Music Awards. And the whole goal around what we do is that we must have consumers download something called a free trial care certificate. So the success of our campaign is completely measured on that ability. So I was just brought onto this account, I should preface that, this year. Two previous years, I think we spent about a million and a half dollars the first year around the VMAs, 15,000 downloads of free trial pair certificates. Um, last year, we spent $4 million and had 5,000 downloads of free trial pair certificates. So, again, I always get the people with the problems, right? Um, <laughs> <laughs> so they come to me and say, we tripled our spending and obviously had a massive decline as to how many people were downloading, so we have to do something completely different and completely radical and, and completely viral, and I hope you can do that. So they handed me something that they came up with called Hampton High. I don't know if any of you saw that on MTV. It's something crafted to be called a style soap. So it is a webisode, but an advertorial. And the CW is sort of doing that with some of its pod ads. I don't know if you've seen that around some of the content. So it's two this fictional place. So sort of like a, a Hills Laguna Beach kind of thing, but completely scripted and funded by AccuView contact lenses. So the first style so debuted um, after, during rather, the premiere episode of The Hills. And so we were tasked with doing this completely viral thing, so driving people to the Hampton High website, getting them involved, creating all kinds of banners and advertisements. And so we've got 9,000 buzz spotters, and what we allowed them to do was once they handed us the art, they created their own kind of way of, interpret of interpreting what we were doing and posting on their blogs and on their Facebook pages and creating events and things of that nature. And the last we checked, we were around like 40,000 downloads. So. You know, it's an interesting case study because you start with something that's very traditional, spend money on a show that makes sense, that your target demographic is watching. But I think also it's not a problem of, and this is where it gets hard because you don't want to say TV was the problem. I think the problem was the engagement, and this time it was much clearer for consumers on how to engage and then what to do after. And if you're watching a TV show, your first thought isn't, let me log on right now and go get a free trial pair certificate when Britney's coming on in two minutes. So... I think it's also thinking through that and saying, okay, when you're online and you're on a cool, you know, a gloss.com and you see an ad for Hampton High and you click through and it's one more click to get a free trial certificate, it's much easier, I think. So I think that's part of the, the conversation now is, you know, J&J &J, a couple of years ago, did, they just weren't open to this idea of creating this online piece. I mean, they're a huge publicly traded company. What happens on this site? And so the first thing is it couldn't be J&J &J owned. It had to be completely... You know, it can be funded and, and supported with advertisement by, you know, AccuView or Vistacon, but it can't be a J&J &J licensed site. So I think that's part of where, at least for me with major consumer brands, where a lot of our clients are going. You know, P&G, our other client, they've got beinggirl.com. 
just the same. I don't know if you've seen that site for tween girls, you know, doing really well. But I think that's part of the next step is saying we still need traditional, we still need TV. Obviously, you know, premiering a style so during an episode of The Hills was really important to our campaign. So there's still a traditional piece, but how do we broaden it with what we do online to make it make sense and yield better results for us? Um, so we, we've done uh, a whole bunch of um, kind of um, programs that are, I guess I would call kind of uh, point solutions. You know, you, you do something where, and they're not, not, they're not in any way, um, uh, you know, inconsequential efforts. In fact, just to get uh, a big corporation to start to think about lowering the walls and opening up a two-way discussion with a the community and, and being around other content that isn't carefully scripted and, and then broadcast out. That, that's, a, that's a tricky conversation to have. It's easier this year than it was last year, by the way. Um, and I, I predict it's going to be even easier moving forward. But, but, but last year, it was really hard to have that conversation with people. Like, what, are the, what are the rules around, okay, what if they mention a, a competitive brand name and what if they do this or that? And, and, and uh, the, the notion of control that Ferris mentioned, it's, it's you know, I think a lot of good marketers have understood that they have to just reconcile themselves to the fact that they don't have, um, they don't have control. But the, the program that I, I think I'm going to point to is actually a case study in the making. And I like it because it's, it's a thing that is um, probably two reasons. One is um, we listened to how some early efforts that we did um, worked, how people used it, how they, um, how they um, appropriated it uh, for their own purposes and then responded to it with the next iteration of the program. So um, it's actually a program for, for uh, an insurance company. It's, it's, uh, it's an insurance company called Liberty Mutual, which is actually a very large company, but a very uh, unknown company, relatively speaking. It's about the size of Coca-Cola as a corporation, but, but clearly doesn't have anywhere close to the kind of brand recognition. We just took over working on Liberty Mutual a couple years ago. And um, last year, I guess, was kind of our, our first effort to kind of uh, test the waters on kind of a new way to talk about that company. And the, the place we started, we, you know, insurance, clearly, it's a, it's a, for most people, a very low interest category. You're not, you know, running around um, passionately engaged in insurance. Um, not a lot of insurance fanboys out there. Um, <laughs> so, so what do you do, right? And, and um, so we, we looked around in the, in the culture and we looked at Kind of what the what the competition was doing, and there 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 is this kind of there, there's a couple of kind of um, couple of, uh, of um, uh, kind of um, structures that are in place. There's in the conversation around insurance. There's kind of the um, the the parent to child kind of discussion, which is the traditional kind of all state you're in good hands, paternalistic we'll take care of you discussion that goes around kind of the the insurance company as parent. There's also this kind of child-to-child um, -child discussion, which is kind of the insurance is this trivial joke. Who cares? Get a quote and let's get on with it. Kind of the Geico approach, which is, which is eminently entertaining, right? It's, it's terrific for, for a lot of people. And it is great for the person who believes that, you know what, this is just a thing I need to check off my to-do list and get, get, get over it. And, and it, it attracts attention and, and you're done, right? And we said, okay, so there's an opportunity here for this, this kind of adult-to-adult -adult conversation. There's got to be a segment of people who, say, who 
you know, when, when you ask the what keeps me up at night question, we say, you know, one of the things that keeps me up at night is the idea of what happens to me or what happens if, if my house burns down or what happens to my business. And we really say, look, insurance, this is a pretty serious thing. And I want this, a company that takes this seriously. And we had a client in, in Liberty Mutual where if you actually go into their headquarters, they have, you know, they've been around for a long time. They have this, this kind of stone, uh, engraved in stone kind of mantra that um, is in their lobby and just kind of looms over you as you, as you walk in. And it, and it starts off with this, this thing that was written many decades ago that starts off, we together with our policyholders are engaged in a great mutual enterprise. And they talk about the benefits of getting risk out of people's lives, right? And we're like going, okay, these people take this very seriously. They, they, uh, we did a whole bunch of kind of interviews early on with, the, with, with their teams and they, they're like, okay, you know what, we believe in, um, in doing the right thing. So we said, okay, there's something. There's something you can actually, um, you can actually um, work with, which is, you know what, in this kind of world, of, there's lots of kind of crass, um, expedient um, kind of stuff in the culture, and what if we kind of counter-programmed against that and said, you know what, we, we, um, we, we actually think uh, taking responsibility, do, doing the right thing versus the easy thing, is an important thing to do. So initially, it was primarily it was um, it was kind of a traditional campaign, but it also had some um, uh, components that invited participation from the from the audience. We we had a, uh, a website, whatsyourpolicy.com, kind of just it's it's we've taken it off now in anticipation of something else. But it was meant to kind of just uh, prov provoke questions about what is the right thing to do, and ask people to weigh in, and we had a very skeptical client initially who said, well, who's going to do this, right? Who, who possibly is going to do this? But people find their way to these things, and you get um, tens of thousands of people kind of weighing in on, is it the right thing for a motorcycle rider to wear a helmet or not, or, or, or something that, um, a question we came up with every, every week. And um, so they, they kind of got the fact that people actually do kind of want to engage. And then there were all these other things that were happening that we watched after our first kind of salvo of, hey, what, what about just taking a moment and just doing the right thing versus the easy thing? The, the, the entire campaign really had very little specifically to do about insurance. It, it really wasn't this auto policy is better than this other auto policy, whatever. It, and um, it just kind of said, look, we, if you think it's important to do the right thing versus the easy thing, we might be a company you want, you want to think about. And um, so, uh, you know, we got uh, thousands of, um, of people who contacted the company and the agency who said, um, you know, uh, I, I want a copy of your ad campaign, your television campaign to play to my third grade class or to my, you know, to whomever. We, we actually had a class, a couple, a couple classes that remade the 60-second anthem spot in their classroom um, and, and posted on YouTube. We had a guy who, um, who sent in a check for $20 and said, look, I'm not in a position to be a Liberty Mutual customer, but um, I so appreciate what you're doing that would you please add this to your marketing budget? And um, <laughs> so th there was this kind of c complete kind of this, this un- stated kind of reaction to what was kind of some of the prevailing wins in consumer culture of, of, um, of you know, not necessarily, um, you know, celebrity obsessed and, and, and doing things that were not necessarily the right thing. And, and so we're really kind of, stage two, which we're in the midst of now, is really taking advantage of that. And, and substantially their program for next year, their entire marketing program, 
um, there are there, there's not just a little uh, bauble off to the side. You know, we talked about bright shiny objects last uh, yesterday. Um, it's not a bright shiny object. It is the thing. It is it is the core of their campaign for next year. Is uh, this this kind of multi-part, very transmedia kind of notion around associating this company with this value and finding all of the pockets in um, the culture that may have some reflection of this value and in some way associating uh, the company with it, um, a community creating content around it, inviting participation. So um, uh, that, that's probably the case. Okay. I, I'm, I'm intrigued by this discussion about what is essentially content. Um, and I am fascinated by the proposition of style of so, partly because it's a word I don't particularly like and I don't like words that I don't like. Um, <laughs> I want to take a question from the board that, that, that is a topic we've, we've addressed somewhat, but there's a question here that says the more, let's see if my screen comes back, the more advertising shape shifts into entertainment, how qualified is the audience as potential customers? And the qualifier in this statement is that I love Bud TV's swear jar video, but I wouldn't drink Bud if you paid me. <laughs> and the, the, the question of the style episode, I think, brought this, brought this up. But, but Baba, what you've been describing as well, you know, people remaking advertising campaigns in class, I mean, you can create this awesome, compelling content, but does it actually address the audience? Or do people just consume it as content, and what's the impact for the client? And, and those sorts of questions. And I just, whoever wants to have that one first. You, you attacked my style suit, so I guess I'll <laughs> go first, right? Uh, well, it's interesting we're having this discussion. And, and one of the things, obviously, in the last few weeks, if you work in our business, the big climate is the writer's strike. I just actually got back from L.A. Wednesday. And one of the biggest discussions I was even having with my agent there was content is key. Content is king. We all have, keep hearing this. And one of the, at least I see for my clients, a big area that's growing is this idea of branded entertainment mm -hmm. and what that really means. And, and a lot of what I've been reading, even up to what kept me up last night reading on Variety.com, was talking about you know the role that advertisers can play and people going straight and doing deals. That's, that was one of my comments. Why is everyone just giving everything to the networks? Why don't you keep 30% for yourself if you're someone like a Shonda Rhimes or a J.J. Abrams and, and go to P&G? and say, I want to make this show, fund it. So I, I think that that's an area that kind of makes sense now. I mean, when you look at who has the money to spend, you know, I have a friend who shall remain nameless at P&G who says, I don't even think we're going to be going to upfronts in, in the next three years. If you don't understand, now upfront happens in May. It's when the networks present their lineup for the fall, the shows that are going to be on TV. Advertisers come in and decide, yes, I'm going to buy this. No, I'm not going to. It's a big to-do, and they said, quite frankly, I think it's a waste of our advertising dollars that they put on this big show to make us spend money. And again, now you've got the advertising community thinking in a way that maybe traditionally they didn't think mm -hmm. of being smarter. And so I, I think this idea of content is really important. And, and when I go back to talking about brands and how we're trying to get our clients to think of brand. I mean, Gossip Girls is a brand. It's not a show on the CW. It's a brand that speaks in books in different ways to teens and tweens. It's about you know these girls and the and guys and the lifestyle they're living, and it can translate down to what clothes they're wearing. You know, Verizon's a huge sponsor of that show. Totally makes sense. While you're watching Gossip Girls, a little ad shows up that says, "Want cool, exclusive." Gossip Girls content, get it through Vcast on Verizon. You know. But does that drive people to the... I mean, you can put that in front of them, right. but does that drive people to the Vcast service? 
I think in some cases it makes people look at something that they might not have looked at before. Mm -hmm. No, I totally agree. I'll watch every ad during the Super Bowl. I don't drink Budweiser. I thought that was the coolest commercial. Mm. I might watch it a hundred times over, but I don't do it. I mean, but on the flip side, then you can go back That's and say, you know, you look at Tide. You know, is Tide cool? Tide detergent? Not really, but I was just on Blip.com, which is owned by Condé Nast. It also publishes Team Vogue. And now they've got 80s-style Tide mm. T-shirts. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I think the idea is that there are messages to get out. Mm -hmm. There are only so many channels, and everyone's trying to attract who they can. Paris, I think there's at least two, and possibly three, fundamental questions about what we do mm. in this kind of issue. Um, one, which is this thing about moving towards brands and entertainment. I think that's a subset of a bigger thing, but in essence, people thought it was going to happen. It's happening to a degree because. The model by which we used to communicate was to interrupt entertainment. Mm -hmm. Now the tools exist to ignore that interruption and move around it. Therefore, the only way to get the attention is to invade the entertainment itself. Um, but I think invading is not necessarily a helpful way of doing it, because product placement can be useful. But if it's too obvious, as we were talking about last night, if it's too obvious, people see it, pass it differently, and ignore it, because they're kind of cognizant of being sold to too hard. I think it's more about kind of, OK, if we want to earn some people's attention, if we can't just buy it on TV spots anymore, we have to try and find a way to deliver some level of value in order to earn that attention. And one way of doing that is entertainment value. People like content. I think Howard Gossage, one of the most legendary ad men of all time, has a brilliant quote about this. He says, people don't read ads. They read things that interest them, interest them and sometimes they happen to be ads. Um, mm. If you can be interesting and generate cultural content from a brand that is worth engaging with, people will give you some of their time. That's, that's one thing. The other thing, and this is more fundamental perhaps into what advertising is all about, does generating attention, familiarity, um, uh, predisposition lead to sales? Mm. I think that's a much more difficult question and one that we would have a hard time proving most of the time, to be honest. Mm. Um, we can show you that people like the stuff that we do at one end. We can show sometimes that there are sales at the other end or that there's some intangible asset value being generated in the share price that's some way attributable to what you do at this end, mm. but actually connecting the two is extraordinarily complex and difficult. And you have to kind of believe, if you work in advertising, that doing cool stuff people like makes them more likely to um, want to hang out with you. And therefore, when they come to a decision, whatever the purchase might be, that um, they're more likely to go and buy your, your thing. Bill? Yeah, I, I'm agreeing with what's being said. I mean, honestly, if you... Um, the entertainment value is great, but it doesn't really mean anything unless it has relevance to whoever's drinking it. Like the, the, the beer, if they're not a beer drinker, they're entertained by the ad, it doesn't matter. I mean, they're seeing it, that's great that they're enjoying it, but for the advertiser, they're, they're hoping to gain a sale. I mean, that's, that's the reason why they're advertising, is to, is to gain a sale. Um, and they, they're not going to get it everybody, but you want to hope that, okay, for the other person, who does drink beer and is entertained and they're associating the Budweiser with it, then, if, then that person is going to make the sale. So of course you're going to have all this, you know, there is wasted media. You're going to get out there with things. In your mind you're going to think that you have this wasted media. But, you know, it, it does build up. And then there is the word of mouth if that person mentions that ad or, or feel, says something about that Bud commercial to a friend of theirs who does drink beer and then it, they didn't see the commercial and there creates this kind of networking around it. Um, it does have relevance and it does have value in that respect. But I guess in the end, um, there's a lot of commercials that are produced, that are out there, 
that you remember the commercial, you remember the execution, you remember the banner ad, you remember things, and, but you don't remember what the damn product was in it, so there it's useless. Um, so I think you know, the point is just to make sure that you, you don't, there's not a, an improper balance of entertainment versus what is, the, what is, what is relevant about that, that commercial is what, what you're trying to sell or that notion or that service. And um, I think this is where things get lost sometimes. Well, that, that actually is breaking down, that, that <laughs> model. That, it was the basic thing that you couldn't borrow interest. If you borrowed interest, you were basically telling a joke for 25 seconds and then trying to shoehorn right. an ad at the end of it. But the Gorilla commercial, the Cadbury's Gorilla commercial, which you may have seen, destroys that completely. It just messes up that entire belief system for us. Because it's a, I don't know if you've seen it. Has anybody seen, seen it? Have you all seen it? Do you want to see it? I've got it on video. It's quite yeah, no, I love it. <laughs> it's uh, the Gorilla one, the, the normal one. So this is, um, it's just messed up and it kind of makes ad planning really kind of different in my opinion. Uh, this one? Uh, let me see. Yeah, that one's the, the original, yeah. Yep. sees it likes it and it's been shown now to have sold more chocolate and repair kind of damaged the Cadbury brand they had because of kind of recall issues the year before in, in the UK but it's not about anything to do with chocolate or you know a USP or a benefit or anything like that that we yeah. kind of assume was the basic job of advertising yeah um, so I find it fascinating professionally very challenging because yeah. it's oh, like yeah. what, what do we sort of do now you know <laughs> sorry <laughs> Jesus Mike do you think, speak to this oh, yeah sorry. I mean I think it's an interesting example because, I mean, while it's really hard to measure, there's a lot to be said for just generating goodwill. You know, like yeah, whether, yeah. whether you are actually going to do anything about it or not, feeling good about a brand has a lot of mileage, especially with something like, like Budweiser where the name is everywhere. You know, it's like seeing an event sponsored by a brand that you hate is, you know, far much of a turnoff than seeing one <laughs> sponsored by a brand that you're all right with because they had a commercial that was really cool, you know? It's like, yeah. just yeah. Yeah. at least getting people to feel neutral is still something. <laughs> <laughs> you know, because, I mean, you just don't want to be vile, you know? Like, so 
there's a lot to be said for just getting people to think that you're okay. Yeah. So I think point. I uh, I actually used to um, work for Fallon, the agency that created that spot, and the 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 line that um, that Fallon used for for years in uh, presentations to clients trying to explain this particular kind of um, this, this particular kind of attitude about about the work is the uh, uh, the economic leverage from creativity, and the the fact that in in most categories where commodification is is the norm, every, you, people don't process all the different choices that are available to them. There is something to be said for um, for uh, uh, for creativity, uh, but you know it's interesting. There's there's a lot of there's actually a lot of similarities between kind of pol uh, political um, decision making and and um, the advertising world, right? So the the notions of you know there's a there's kind of a a um, model of the voter that says it's a, he or she's a rational kind of policy wonk kind of evaluating issue by issue and setting up some sort of kind of um, uh, you know. Uh, Spreadsheet-based kind of evaluation of all of all of the uh, important um, issues to be decided in the next election, but instead, what really happens is, is of course, some sort of a, an emotional connection with the person who's up there at the podium. That actually happens, you know. Yeah, I don't know what this says about the democratic process, but it happens very quickly. And it happens um, very intuitively, and yes, policy matters, and policy matters for for um, for a lot of people, but. But for uh, many voters, there there is this uh, this whole subtext of politics that isn't about what the stump speech says. It isn't about you know getting the getting the um, getting the getting the notes right on all the policy issues. And I think that's true in in what um, what what brands and advertisers try to do. There was a line uh, or kind of an exchange in one of the panels yesterday. I think it was Jim Nail from Symphony who was talking about that moment of truth when somebody is is selecting something off of a shelf or you could say somebody is about to click on something online and and, and people tell you why they did it consumers will tell you but they they make stuff up you know they they're not really sure uh, why they made some of the decisions that they did it's it's somewhat um, uh, complex but but that being said I think there is this thing about uh, about having some um, uh, humility in the ad advertising uh, world, which is all too lacking. You know, there, there is um, among clients and agency people this kind of view uh, of uh, of kind of you know pulling the puppet strings and like beaming stuff into people's heads, and they will kind of like robot like you know go do what you want them to do, and they, and they really don't. And I, I think uh, uh, you, you know that that uh, that line that Ferris mentioned about about um, you know people don't read ads; they read what's interesting to them, and sometimes it's ads. You know that can be applied overall throughout their life. And I think one of the big transitions to in in marketing actually is is not just uh, is not just uh, saying stuff, but doing stuff. Uh, so j sorry, just 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 to pick up on that, I, I think I mean we're, we're oscillating around what ultimately might be a proposition about branded entertainment. And about and about the value of it, or, or the future of the potential of it, or, or something or other. And maybe producing brand entertainment or integrating brands is this idea of doing stuff as opposed to just to, to just saying stuff. And I'm wondering if, if we can talk for a minute about the potentials and the, and, and the opportunities. Because I know, I mean, Bill, if you think about your your case, it would be quite difficult to to produce something like that because of the the, the regulation environment in which in which you exist. And yet it would seem 
that would provide opportunities in terms of modelling the outcomes of, of the product and those sorts of values. Yeah, I mean, we, um, we can certainly embed and do within, just using Fidelity as an example, like between our Fidelity magazines, we produce our newsletters, um, our website, it's full of content, it's very educational in nature, it's, it's, that's where we get a lot of branded notes. We try to actually aggregate data from other types of sites, CNN.com, I mean, just bring it, um, CNN Money and all, just to kind of bring um, information together. So um, where the line is drawn is when you are making a recommendation to somebody mm -hmm. to do something or when folks feel like you are telling them to do. You can outline choices. You can outline options. You want to educate folks, um, you know, take them through their, the frame of life of most folks. I mean, we have this kind of paradigm which doesn't fit any, you know, everybody neatly, but, you know, they, most folks don't think about finding, much like the insurance you were mentioning before, Baba, that you know, a lot of folks don't want to think about it until they have, you know, there's some kind of life change event that takes place. They um, are saving for their first house. They have a child or something comes up that triggers a financial decision that they have to start moving, a death of a, uh, a, death of a, of a parent. And then they start getting into the mind frame of it. And then where do you enter into that? So you try to con continuously start educating them once they've gotten into the fold. Of they, they, they tend to refer back to financial websites and um, the Susie Ormans and such. And how do they refer back and forth? So the whole thing is you know, getting your, um, we, we, we constantly would, we, we like to you know, educate we just can't necessarily, we, it, not necessarily, we don't want to tell folks. We want folks to actually educate themselves, figure out what they need to do, or go to a specialist, go to somebody who can recommend to them what they should do. And um, because it, you just don't want folks going off and doing something wrong. I mean, that's just, there's, there's just a social responsibility that way, too. Um, gone are the days where folks should just go off and recommend something. Uh, folks get, they put these laws in place for a reason, because folks were losing life savings. But, but I mean, and I, just, I keep seeing this question on the board that keeps bouncing up, and it's, 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 it's from Scott Osterweil, who, who asks, in the early days of television, shows were owned yes. you know, and, and, <laughs> and branded. Um, and, and you know, are we, are we returning to that kind of a model, and does that provide us with, with some safety and opportunity, or, or, or is it full of only fraught with challenges? No, I think the biggest shift, and I think you were just starting to talk about it before you were kind of, we moved, is, is this idea, and I've been talking to my clients a lot <laughs> about... You so rudely interrupted, you <laughs> to say. Yeah. Um, about mindset marketing, and that's what I'm trying to educate my clients about. I think for us, it's, it was so traditional where you talk to 13 to 17-year-olds this way, you talk to a certain group this way, and I think that as an agency, at least myself, we're moving to clients understanding the mindset. For instance, this started say about five years ago when people started talking about the urban consumer and we had to talk in a mindset because when you think about what urban culture is about it's not just something that african-american kids are doing in the suburbs it's a culture that's it might you might say translates to what all teenagers are doing based on certain points and so i think that that's probably for me seeing the biggest shift is when you talk about is advertising important you know i think it's more of what's the mindset of consumers at the time and then how do you plan around that mindset so for instance, understanding that a brand like Cadbury is in trouble or something, when you think about where consumers, that makes sense that an ad like that would get to them. Because if they're in a place where I want to be entertained, you know, it's also looking at what is most important for your consumer. You know, I look at a brand like Gap, and when we talk about is advertising successful or not, for me, it is with them. Because 
when they have people that are interesting that I want to pay attention to, I'll go into the store and look at something that would not at all, you know, catch my attention at any other point. So, you know, I think it's how do we figure out where it fits? And I think that starts with understanding what does a consumer want? And to the question of are we moving back to that model, I mean, that's where soap operas came from, you know, the P&Gs of the world. And I think that when we are dealing with those kind of big companies and they understand that, I definitely think that there's potential to go back there. And I think that, you know, for them, it kind of it, it makes sense. I think that agencies are still important in, in understanding and translating what that dialogue means and saying, okay, you want Venus razors to target this, this demographic. We're going to now go have a discussion and come back to you with the content that Trust? makes sense. Yeah, I think, I mean, totally. That is where, obviously, yeah, Soap Opera came from, where you've kind of invented to appeal to a specific economic purchasing unit, that this housewife construct. They're like Soap Operas, let's make them you know, gossip-laden stories on radio and we'll develop that property. I think, though, increasingly there are more diverse iterations of what that's trying to achieve, which is kind of what, up to Bubba's point, which was it's about delivering some kind of value. Mm. And you can deliver value by the entertainment sort of function, that's fine, that's one way of doing it in media. The, the doing stuff, though, is increasingly, I think, where a lot of brands are and agencies that want to be kind of contributors to culture and to do nice things for people, basically, rather than be perceived as being essentially evil capitalist tools. Um, so it's kind of this, this movement towards branded utility, which is an expression that um, a guy called Johnny Vulcan came up with in, uh, in New York. And the idea is you do something that delivers a service value in form of marketing. So one of the best, and it, that, that service value can't just be um, adjacent to your brand. It should be in some way an expression of your brand. So what you do some way delivers a value that is about who you are. One of the most famous examples is when Charmin put some really nice public toilets in Times Square because mm -hmm. there weren't any and they put them there. And, and that kind of thing is really, really powerful because it's like, do you know why Simon's good? Because, well, we you know, did this thing for you, but also do you see how that works? Can we do the paper thing as well? And I think that's, <laughs> that, that, that's kind of really powerful, I think, as an idea. And people are increasingly, I mean, the Nike run London, uh, I guess it run, maybe it runs here as well, I don't know, but that was kind of like, okay, we sell trainers. We want people to run more. People find it hard to motivate themselves. Let's start kind of running communities and clubs and sort of help people do that thing. And obviously, we're trying to sell trainers on the back of it, but we're doing it in a way that delivers some kind of value to the people we want to talk to. In this case, people who like running or think they might want to like running or something. You know, we, we've moved away perhaps from um, the branded television shows like the, the Philco and the Texaco and such, but we haven't really moved away from that notion per se. If you take a look at Gillette Stadium, I mean, TD, you know, you've, you've got things are branded. They're using, it's just, um, if, in, if you watch the, you know, many television shows, news events, beauty pageants, you know, brought to you by, you know, whether it's by Dove or from Caress or something, it's still much like those early television shows did where they, you know, the, 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 the Philco Hour on, on, on television or um, GE Theater, uh, we're just, you know, they're just not owning it outright, but they're still owning a, a major portion of, the, of, that, of that segue into it. And as I said, even the different types of enter, enter, um, different kind of entertainment vehicles such as stadiums and such. Um, and, uh, brands are, are locked into a 10-year contract of, of, of that as a, as a media vehicle. When, when they go to your website and all the content and all the banner ads that are on there as well, too, I mean, it's being branded. It's just, a, it's just that before it was television, radio had the same thing. It's, it's, 
It's just that the medium has shifted. It hasn't necessarily gone away. Bill, just to add on to that, I think actually the, the, old, the, the first round of brand entertainment uh, with, with all of the examples that you, you mentioned, the brands are actually more intrusive than, than they are today. They, mm -hmm. they were in the scripts of the skits, and they were in the songs, and they were on stage with the host of the show. Mm -hmm. and. It, it stuff that I think today would just you know it would just make the skin it's crawl. It's starting to happen again. Weirdly, yeah. um, Trevor Beatty is a very famous yeah. ad man in the UK. Has sponsored a run a series of like twenty four hour plays in the in London, and they've got to use potatoes in one of the plays because they, it's a chip brand that's sponsoring it. And they're like, yeah, I don't know. I, I agree. Well, there is kind of this whole meta right. postmodern thing that's happening with yeah. this idea that okay, I'm watching it, but I know it's sponsored, <laughs> and I know you're supposed to have this thing up on stage. Yeah, with you. yeah. yeah. But, um, but you know, what, the question that, the, that someone had in the audience was, so how is this different? What is what, how is what we're doing now different? And I think um, one of the things that is different about it is that we don't have to do it. Uh, because it, it's just one of the mm -hmm. places that you can go. But, but you know, the same kind of uh, tools of production that are in the hands of consumers that make it very easy for the consumers to be producers of their own content. By the way, that also works for the agencies and for the marketers that are involved as well, right? Mm -hmm. So I, um, I uh, for a time, worked at uh, BMW, and we had a project called BMW Films. Um, mm -hmm. And we were able to work with people like Ang Lee and John Frankenheimer and John Wu and Guy Ritchie. And, um, and those are just the directors. There were some marquee um, uh, on-screen talent as well without involving a studio or a network um, or any distribution mechanism. Um, and uh, so it, it is possible, when you ask that question, mm -hmm. is, it, is it fraught with peril? It is, because entertainment's hard to do. I mean, look at the track record of anybody who is pro a professional, you know, forget about the branded part about it, um, you know, a studio chief or a network programming czar, and, and look, at the, look at the, you know, uh, batting average. It's, um, it's hard to do. Mm. Um, it, it's hard to do well. But, um, but I, I would say, you know, today one of the things we, we, we think about is the old, do you build it or do you, do you co collaborate with somebody else to, to, to build it? Mike, I'd, I'd like to bring you in because if you... Yeah, I mean, not really my forte specifically, but I mean, I think one thing that we do see is that, like, um, you know, it's not so much that it's just about owning a show anymore. Like, this, the sphere is sort of expanding where, like, you know, you've got the show and your product, and then, you know, the product's going to run a promotional that is focused on, you know, including aspects of the show, and then the show, you know, you go to their online presence, and it's just blanketed in ads by the product, you know, and it's just sort of like, it's not just like the show is brought to you by anymore, it's everything about the show is brought to you by, and then everything about the person who has brought you the show is about that, you know, and it's just sort of like, it just sort of blows up a little bit, you know, sort of like. I think you can do it online. I mean, you guys did famously Subservient Chicken with right. Crispin mm -hmm. and, and Burger King, and that's branded entertainment. It's fantastic branded entertainment, but it's um, not branded like film content. Well, it's kind of interactive film content, but I don't know. Do you guys know Subservient Chicken? I guess it's quite, okay, right, cool. Mike, can, can you run us? I mean, it's, it was it was quite famous. Can can you run us through that that campaign, and and, and, and what was going on there? Um, to some extent, it was, it was a while ago. Um, I mean, basically, you know, the sort of they they being uh, Crispin and Burger King were ready to try something that was a little, you know, something new, you know, something that 
was not so much tied to an existing campaign and just something that was based purely in engaging people and just making something that was cool enough that people would want to come use it, uh, very lightly branded so that it wouldn't be you know, an immediate turnoff, and just sort of making something cool for the sake of being cool and trusting that the value there would be enough to make the brand popular, um, which apparently worked out really well. Um, so, you know, I mean, that's, that's really all there is to it, though. Like, just as a mechanism? Yeah, what was it? Oh, it's a, okay, so it's a site where um, basically, oh, yeah, if you, if you got it, it's working. Cool. Um, okay. <laughs> Do a little bit of engineering to make this happen. Use the appropriate place. If you want to keep talking, I'll make this, make this happen. Okay, sure, sure. Um, the idea is that you come to a site with almost no branding on it. I'm just going to talk straight to you. And the site is it's sort of meant to mimic a, a webcam view where you're looking at this, this character, this chicken character in a room, and you have a little prompt to say, hey, you know, tell me what to do. What, what do you want from me? Uh, and then you know, the user uh, types in, hey, go jump on the couch, and then the chicken goes and jumps on the couch, you know, sort of, um, you know, just. It's really no more complex than that? Well, I mean, it, it can get into the nuts and bolts of how it actually works, if that's what you want to know. But, I mean, so far as an actual experience goes, uh, you know, it really is just sort of getting people, like, I guess what it comes down to is making people wonder on some level, is that really a person? Am I being fooled? You know, like, how is this actually working? People, you know, they want to know. It's like it's like a good magic show, you know, and so, you know, and also just getting people to to have that sort of um, it, to make it intriguing enough that people want to come back and try it again. You know, how much time are you going to spend on the site? How much time are you going to actually want to, you know, spend coming back to the site? And then, do you think it's cool enough to send to your friends? Which is really like the that's the big thing. It's like if. If it's cool enough that I think everyone else is going to enjoy it and I show it to all my friends, then that's a success, you know. And, you know, there are ways you can count that. There are ways that you can't, you know, sometimes you sort of, like, rely on what you hear about it to know whether or not it actually worked. But, um, yeah, it's like, again, like I said, it really just comes back to making that experience interesting and fun. I think the, the, the depth that that thing had was amazing because there's, hundreds and hundreds of different commands you can execute. There's like Easter eggs you put in certain magic terms, mm -hmm. they do magic things. It's like, yeah, it's just yeah, well, and the that's, level of thought that went into it is kind of what I think people will go back again and again, you know. Right, well, and that's the trick to, like, you can't, you can't fool people too well anymore. <laughs> you know, people are, people are smart, and, you know, they, they need to be really drawn in and they need to be, you know, they need to be engaged on a pretty substantial level. The the thing that I one of the things to point out about it I think that was really cool about it is it's so it's so underproduced, you know, which is yeah I mean the the whole thing about you know huge brand that would do a guy in a chicken suit you know in an apartment because the aesthetic is kind of porn related let's be honest mm -hmm. that's kind of where the idea kind of yeah, yeah they got some like shitty hotel room in L A somewhere and basically just set up a camera and did it. <laughs> <laughs> we 
Yeah, and there are a couple. There were a couple versions of the site. You know, seeing it early on, there's a lot that was available that no longer is. I think in the version that eventually went live, you see a lot of this from the chicken. But this inspired a whole subgenre of websites. I mean, there was virtual bartender, virtual girlfriend. They they were more salacious, if I remember correctly. I don't, you know, I may have browsed them briefly. It became kind of a form, you know, a web form that you know that's just culturally very interesting. The way it gets replicated. Well, and also the cool thing about this, at least at the time, was that like if you looked at the page, you know, you've got the the copyright. It says Burger King. Uh, and then there's the link to the right, the BK Tender Crisp, and then beyond that, the, you know, you've got the the logo at the load screen, but that's that's it, you know. Like, it just sort of it's there to be what it is, and yeah, it's by Burger King, but we're not going to beat you over the head with that. It's just sort of they had the money. And it's they, also they got they that whole money. meta thing we were talking about, because everybody knows it's from Burger King, and they have the budget to do a spectacular, you know, animatronic chicken or whatever. But it's how cool is it that they're doing this? Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's just, so how do you work out the value from this? I mean, how do you, know, how do you make money off this? Or what's it, or what's it, what's it good for? Uh, for, for us for as a company King. or no, for, for... No, for, for Burger King. King. <laughs> <laughs> I realize it was good for... Pretty good for you. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, I think definitely the, uh, the sort of the goodwill thing I was talking about, the, you know, the word of mouth that comes with it. Um, and just, you know, the, the sheer number of people who have been to a Burger King site, like, I don't know... I'm not going to pretend to understand the sort of marketing ins and outs of what that means, but from my understanding, more hits means more business, you know. And whether that's in actual sales or whether that's in sort of an association that's made with the brand, and like Burger King is cool because they did this, and I'm going to, you know, I want more of this, you know, which I guess people did because this is a campaign that they just ran with after this, you know. And so for them, there must have been value in just seeing the success of one thing enough to build a franchise around that campaign. You know, like this whole sort of dude in a chicken suit thing that we saw a lot more of afterwards. Well, there was also that thing that it was the time where Crispin was bringing back that old classic line about Burger King, have it your way, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. And so, you know, the, the, again, the impressions-based media way to do that is just put that line on everything that you do and just do it, you know, a million times. And the new way is you have a subservient chicken yeah. and, and <laughs> does have it your way. way. Yeah. <laughs> so if it's ultimately good for developing some sort of buzz then, and this is to return to a question that was on the board before, why are people so concerned about negative buzz? I mean, because I mean, obviously it goes, you know, it goes with the wind and, and you can put up a wonderful campaign like the gorilla and, and ultimately you can hope to redress you know, some of that. I and think that might be... <laughs> well, I mean, you I have to start with the psychological piece of it, of just saying we work for people who spend every day of their life crafting a brand and what yeah. that means. Mm -hmm. so, it's a religion, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> and, and you, I mean, your brand is who you are. Mm -hmm. You walk into a company, you see your principles, your mission, you know what you're doing every day. It's important. Or we wouldn't be hired if it wasn't important. Exactly. So maintaining that differentiates a Geico from a Liberty Mutual. And so I think that's the first statement is, you know, it is who they are. Mm -hmm. So you know, yeah, I know. That's the way they need us, yeah. basically. Yeah, it's exactly <laughs> what. It's not a realistic way to perceive the world. So it's, yeah. Well, also, I think, well, you kind of alluded to this before, Mike, when you were saying that sometimes, you know, the absence of the negative. I mean, you, it's like anything else. You recommend things, or, or if it's just out there, if there's, um, you know, 
it takes so long to dig yourself out of the hole <laughs> than it does than it does to build it up from you know, from scratch when you start at a base. And so there is this real inherent um, conservativeness of mm -hmm. doing anything that may teeter on bringing you down. Mm -hmm. Because building that up again, you lose some customers for life. It's like you can go to a restaurant, you know, every Friday night and have a great meal. Mm -hmm. You have that one shitty meal. Mm -hmm. That place sucks from there on in. And if you create an, a situation with, uh, with, with, your, with your audience, with your client, with, your, with, your, with the folks that your customers, and, and you bring it down, they, they, they really get angry about it. And it's very hard to bring it back up again. Isn't this, isn't Intel this tons of people, too. Right. <laughs> isn't this exactly. some, some sort of a push model? I mean, isn't, isn't this about a conversation? Or shouldn't it be about a conversation? And if it is about a conversation, why are you the only guys who get to talk? Or, or why is the brand the only people who, who get to dictate what gets said or, or, or how things but they, get But they said. don't. That isn't the case yeah. anymore. Yeah. That's the point, I think. Right. And you're right. The, the whole the mantra we've been preaching for a while is the shift from monologue to dialogue. We're not very good at doing it, though, as that Microsoft film, Bring the Love Back, someone mentioned yesterday, demonstrates. We kind of think dialogue is, you can email me and I can ignore you. That's kind of what dialogue is, right? Um, and that's the thing. People, if you ask people to contribute and talk to you, if you don't then act on that contribution, it's worse than ignoring them in the first place. But with the negative thing, I, I tell all my clients to do this. Like, put your brand plus the word sucks into Google and see what people are saying. Because, guarantee, any brand at all in the world, mm -hmm. put that word plus sucks in, and you'll have hundreds of people, thousands of people hate you for some reason, you know? And some of them can be good reasons, some are worth engaging with as conversations, and some are just like, okay, well, you know, reputation management, why are people saying these things about you? Why, if you're, you know, McDonald's, are you the obesity flag poster child and not Burger King? <laughs> why, why, if you're Nike, are you a sweatshop operator and not Adidas? Do you know what I mean? Why are these things, why are there strange attractors pulling negative vibes towards your particular brand and how do you then enter into a discussion about dealing with it rather than ignoring it and saying we're, we're amazing, here's our shiny new TV ad because that's not yeah. useful anymore because everyone yeah. has that, that voice in this conversation yeah. now. De yeah. Dell is kind of an interesting uh, example of kind of the, the, the bad of that and now maybe starting to be the good of this mm -hmm. because they, you know, they very famously ignored a very prominent blogger who had a problem with his, his with Dell laptop, and 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 uh, uh, it's the classic kind of you know we're not listening, we're not paying any attention, we're the the, the brand that's just that's just uh, dictating, um, and um, it's a one-way conversation. But uh, today, uh, at least if you look at kind of some of the the programs they've put in place, they they have a very um, a, a very well-trafficked. Uh, uh, public blog that talks about things like why, what what their second life strategy is, and what they're thinking about um, in, in what they're doing on second life, and, and many other things. Um, they have the uh, the uh, idea storm portal, which is supposed to generate um, consumer ideas for products uh, and services. And they have a whole different way of approaching uh, customer support that is uh, that is mm -hmm. interesting as well. So it, it's it's kind of a uh, it's kind of a uh, an interesting time that we're in, where it's not it's not you know we're talking a lot here about about marketing, but if you're really listening, and the only thing you're responding to is in changing your marketing, you're not really listening yeah, at all. No, absolutely, right? marketing is about servicing needs, which means it should be embedded in product development. That's kind of, mm -hmm. but often it's not. It's a team that controls advertising, which is right. very separate from the business, which absolutely. is a problem. Though Idea Storm, that's a wonderful step for Dell. Mm -hmm. I think I read somewhere that. The, the number one recommended or you know, required um, 
change was to pre-install Linux rather than Windows on their laptops. Right. And they went, yeah, we're not, that's not going to happen, though, because yeah. <laughs> we had this deal with Microsoft and everything. So what else would you like? So that kind of yeah. sort themselves a little bit in the foot, because when you talk to geeks, you've got to assume that geeks hate Microsoft a little bit. And yeah, yeah anyway. So what, what, what's, what's the role for and how can you effectively manage social media um, you know, when, when you're trying to have these conversations? And how do you get the best out of it? I think we should ask Mark, he's the guru, right? right. <laughs> Crushing silence. I think, I mean, I think we're talking about something that's really, you know, a lot of my clients speak to the youth demographic, and I always go back to when I was in high school. If I wanted to know if Bonnie Bell or Jane tested on animals, what did I do? Call an 800 number? You know, how would I get that information? Mm. Now you got, you know, 10 year olds that are saying, I just can't possibly buy that product because what I read online, and you're like, you're 10. So, you know, it's just, it's just not good for me. I can't be doing that, you know. And, and the amount of, you know, even tweens that know what Kashi is, is mind-blowing. And so I think that when we talk about it, it's becoming a discussion that really several years ago just didn't need to be had. And so it's first grappling with the fact that I have to talk to you about something that traditionally I didn't have to talk to you about. So now I've got to figure out a way to do that, a way that makes sense while still doing what I've been doing all of these years, which is creating a brand identity. So how do I protect what I've created over here while making sure that you're still engaged over here? And so I think that's why we see it as being kind of, it's kind of messy right now. You don't know what to do. That Even people having good conversations, like a dove who's having a good conversation about what real beauty is, is still scared about having a public forum and having that discussion. So. They got stung with that whole onslaught thing. Did you see that? Yeah. yeah. Do you guys see that, the, uh, the brand ad? Well, because people aren't stupid and corporate governance is quite a public thing now. Mm. Dove go out with the campaign for Real Beauty, the most recent iteration of which is a film which shows a little kid being bombarded with images of unnatural beauty and some uh, bright spark hacks together that segment out purely out of Axe or Lynx commercial segments, which Unilever also owns. Mm. Sort of saying you can't say this on one hand and not the other. Mm. Because you know we can sort of tell that you know it renders it slightly meaningless, yeah. which raises the other elephant, which is how you manage consumer-generated content, or opportunities for it, or or, or engagement mm. with it, really. Well, in our case, for example, we have um, this, um, this this group called Communispace, where we've got these ten thousand different uh, prospects, customers. They just sign up, and they they they. they give information, we go through it, we hear what they're saying with it within the financial community and all. And we and we absolutely do listen to it because they have their foot they have their ear to the ground on what's going on. And so it would be ridiculous for us not to listen to what's going on. And it's some of that has to do with uh, what's going on socially, what's going on educationally, what's going on from a confusing perspective. You have the older consumers who don't understand what they're doing as they're in, approaching retirement. We talked about the baby boomers now, you know, turning, you know, taking their social security checks, they're cashing in their 401ks, and what do I do with it? I've always accumulated, now I have to spend, how do I do this? Um, and so it's, it's a great vehicle for us, but also it tells us how much we don't know about these folks, because it's, it's unraveling as we speak, it's new every day, because you do have this whole group of, it's not like this is the first, we, we sometimes talk about these baby boomers as the first people that have retired. I mean, everybody has been retiring for years, but just on mass. Mm what's going on. So understanding what's going on in that space, as well as understanding folks that are just trying to invest, folks that are right now, there's a lot of what's going on with the whole undermining of the financial institutions when you see what's going on now with E-Trade and 
the negative buzz that's happened there because of these, these, these mortgage problems, the, you know, the, some prime mortgages. So for us, it, it really is a way for us to understand what is what folks don't understand. Because financial service is confusing for everybody. Those who have been in it for a while, it's very confusing. So, um, and understanding what is that confusion so that we can try to add some clarity to certain areas right now is very important and keeping our, our, ourselves tuned into that. Mike? Yeah, I mean, I think if there were a thing about work that keeps me up at night, it's probably user-generated content because I don't think that we'd have a really great way of dealing with that yet. Um, I think, because everybody wants it, but nobody wants to deal with it. Yeah. So, like, because it, you know, and it comes back. People aren't stupid, and corporate governance is quite a public thing now. Dove go out with the campaign for Real Beauty, the most recent iteration of which is a film which shows a little kid being bombarded with images of unnatural beauty, and some uh, bright spark hacks together that segment out purely out of acts or links commercial segments, which Unilever also owns. Mm. Sort of saying you can't say this on one hand and not the other, mm. because you know we can sort of tell that you know it renders it slightly meaningless, but which raises the other elephant, which is ha how you manage consumer-generated content, or opportunities for it, or, or, or engagement mm -hmm. with it, really. Well, in our case, for example, we have um, this, um, this, this group called Communispace, where we've got these 10,000 different uh, prospects, customers. They just sign up, and they, they, they give information. We go through it. We hear what they're saying with it, within the financial community and all. And we, and we absolutely do listen to it because they have their foot, they have their ear to the ground on what's going on. And so it would be ridiculous for us not to listen to what's going on. And it's, some of that has to do with uh, what's going on socially, what's going on educationally, what's going on from a confusing perspective. We have the older consumers who understand what they're doing as they're approaching retirement. We talked about the baby boomers now you know, turning, you know, taking their social security checks, they're cashing in their 401ks, and what do I do with it? They're always accumulated, now I have to spend, how do I do this? Um, and so it's, it's a great vehicle for us, but also it tells us how much we don't know about these folks, because it's, it's unraveling as we speak, it's new every day, because you do have this whole group of, it's not like this is the first, we, we sometimes talk about these baby boomers as the first people that have retired. I mean, everybody has been retiring for years, but just the, en masse, mm what's going on. So understanding what's going on in that space, as well as understanding folks that are just trying to invest, folks that are right now, there's a lot of what's going on with the whole undermining of the financial institutions. When you see what's gone on now with E-Trade and the negative buzz that's happened there because of these, these, these mortgage problems, the, you know, the some prime mortgages. So for us, it, it really is a way for us to understand what is what folks don't understand because financial service is confusing for everybody. Those who have been in it for a while, it's very confusing. So um, and understanding what is that confusion so that we can try to add some clarity to certain areas right now is very important and keeping our, our, ourselves tuned into that. Mike? Yeah, I mean, I think if there were a thing about work that keeps me up at night, it's probably user-generated content, because I don't think that we'd have a really great way of dealing with that yet. Um, I think, because everybody wants it, but nobody wants to deal with it. Yeah. Yeah. So, like, because, you know, and it comes back to the sort of, like, how much do you want the bad news, because people will say bad things. And, you know, how much do you want your use, you know, visitors to sites exposed to that sort of thing. Um, and so, you know, you, you've got options. I mean, you either put someone watching the site around the clock who's going to moderate this content, um, which obviously comes with an expense and comes with, you know, 
to people, you know, they want a site that they can just sort of put live and forget about. And, you know, to, to have something up that requires constant supervision is not always very appealing. Um, and, it, you know, a lot of it comes down to the brand. You know, some people are far more okay to, you know, take the good and the bad and mm -hmm. sort of roll with it. Um, but, yeah, I mean, it's, it's constantly tricky. And there, I don't think at this point that anybody's comfortable enough with the reality of what user-generated content really means to yeah. really go forward with it. It's slightly misguided as well. I mean, so many uh, user-generated content sort of initiatives that brands develop are lame and lazy, and they're sort of like, you know, what you could do? Make us an ad. And why? I don't. I don't care that much. So you get like ten people that do it for the prize if the incentive is valuable enough. And like we did some like in 2004 with mobile phones in in, in the UK on Orange, and we got like a hundred entries, if that. And you know, the effect is bigger than that because what you're saying about the brand is interesting but the actual content is rarely usable and I think there's a more interesting area that the tools of creativity are democratized that's very true but actual creativity from scratch is hard and if you can help people and generate assets and tools and then the permission to perhaps modulate content rather than create it for you you have a much more viable proposition for a brand so one of the things we did with Sony's Bravia ad was attempt to do that they're going to make, Fallon will make a beautiful piece of film. That's what Fallon are very good at, making beautiful pieces of film. How can we then dismantle that film in some ways and give people the opportunity to mess around with it, remix it, reimagine it, add new soundtracks, add new bits, um, and, and let that propagate out? I think that has sort of more currency at the moment than just saying, can you go and make me an ad because I can then I get rid of my expensive agency partner, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's funny, I said, because Sony VMG is my client, so we're working with Bravia on the Beyonce side, and mm -hmm. she's now going to have a player on her website and right. attract people that way. So I also think it's, you know, I, think, I don't think anyone really knows how to deal with user-generated, and I think it's this idea of we have this place where we go to create things for you, and we come back and say, this is what we've made, now respond to it. And the idea is almost like we're now opening up the workshop, and while we're mixing it up, you're saying, mm, I don't know if that cake needs that much chocolate. It's like there's a recipe and there's a way that we do things, and so it's understanding how do we appropriately have that conversation. It's just not something that people are at the point where they're ready for it, and how do I know that putting one egg extra is going to make it, it what I want? I think that's really interesting. I think there's some of the question here I sort of noted earlier about this sort of move towards interactive participatory audiences and such, and that's been a kind of theme of the whole Convergence thing and the conference, and I think it's, it might be Convergence culture, but I can't remember exactly. There's kind of, we are in a business traditionally of creating products, creative products. And what's interesting is the process rather than the product and, and which elements of that process we can incorporate people in. So showing people how you make the cake sometimes is more interesting than giving them a cake, you know? Mm. And so we kind of, for example, the same Ravia rad, we leaked the, the shooting location to the press. We didn't say, come and take pictures, we just leaked the things to the press because you want to leave some bits for them to do. And they, they came, obviously, and we, you blew up, we blew up building with paint. It looks quite cool, right? So they came and took pictures and filmed it. And so the ad campaign started nine months before the ad was yeah. launched. Yeah which yeah. kind of makes it, it's the process that we're kind of yeah. opening up, you know? And it's, I think it's in general. Like, I was just telling a friend, going to the movies now, 
when I see Angelina Jolie on screen, I used to love her. Now all I think is homewrecker, homewrecker, homewrecker. <laughs> I don't want to go to watch a movie and think about what she's doing with Brad. And, oh, did they really do that in real life? Because when I was reading Us Weekly and I heard she was very sick filming that, it's like, it's stop, you know? It's like, I just want to say to my mind, just stop and watch the movie. Yet, you go see Kevin Spacey and you're like, oh, he's so brilliant. Because I don't know anything about him. You know? come to London, we know some things about yeah. him. Yeah. Yeah. But it, it's now where, and even with that entertainment, you know, my brother's, he was here, he's a student at Berkeley School of Music, and he was talking to me about the strike, and I'm like, you know, I just am very uncomfortable with you knowing that. Because yeah. now, you know, when, uh, you know, what people are, do it's like, you watch Grey's Anatomy, I mean, I've had friends say this now, I watch Grey's Anatomy, and I know everything with George, and now I think that it's desperate that George is with Izzy, because I know in real life George is gay, I'm like, stop, you know, it's like, <laughs> so, how much goes into creating this content, so I think we're getting to a really interesting place, and I think what you're saying is so true, is that I think people are so voyeuristic, and more into the process, that I'm very scared about the end product, and you're like, mm -hmm. oh, yeah, that's another... Another thing from Elway, it's great, you know. It's so how does, how, how does, because you can't put that genie back in the bottle. Exactly. Uh, and so, and, and so how, do we, how do we have to, to shift to, to deal with the reality? Now that people are going to dig, or, you know, they're, they're going to dig into whatever is, I mean, whether you leak it or not, you know, from the home of wonderful tabloid press, whether you leak it or not, people are going to find out what, yeah. you know, what it is, and people are going to pick it apart. So how does that change the landscape and, and how, how are you supposed to respond? I think it changes our jobs the way you're talking about where now you're leaking things yeah. to the press and, and it's now it's a plans <laughs> leakage. It's not even a real right, leak. Yes. Now we're planning. <laughs> you, have, yeah, yeah. you have to encompass that. It's like we, uh, we like giving names to things because that's kind of part of what we do, but we kind of call it propagation planning, which is kind of giving people the hooks to propagate the bits of the content you generate, you know, so it's like it yeah, kind of opening it up and saying, you know. Just to build on that point, I think that is such a critical point because mm -hmm. the, the whole notion of user-generated content, I, I agree so much that the first way that the advertising industry has used it has been such a, a joke, really, which yeah. is to say, you know, here, here we are kind of... Um, sitting on the throne and we've got peasants and serfs out there and <laughs> we're going to select one among you to come up here with us and have your ad on the Super Bowl or, or whatever, right? And you tur it turns out that most of those people are people who are trying to break into advertising. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And it's not, it isn't very uh, democratic, it isn't very useful content and it just comes into the same kind of um, well-trodden paths that we always have, in, um, have used. And so the, the other spectrum of of, uh, of all the way on the other end is kind of the consumer-generated content that we've, we've always had, which is the water cooler talk or the, or the boy, you need to try this, this is so cool, which is just a, con just a spoken conversation. But okay, so, so there's lots of stuff in between, but the, the idea of enabling the um, generation of content loosely defined, whether it's, you know, uh, giving people artifacts that they can do something with, that they can show to other people, that they can pass along, that they can, you know, all of the, I think some of the, the best stuff that's happening on the social networks are the, the whole notion of widgets or badges or things that show um, through uh, your profile and saying what you think is important to other people that um, this brand's um, connected with me in some way. But that's, that's a far cry from saying, okay, we've been creating content as a producer for a long time, for decades. Now you do it. Um, which, you know, I think you, you really you end up with a lot of stuff. I think that, very that ties into that social media thing. The widget thing is really interesting because it's a value. You're giving someone's website some additional functionality in exchange for space on their 
very personal bit of the internet, you know. The social media thing is such a broad expression and, and lots of brands and media owners are jumping into it and saying we're social media, what does that mean? I don't really know. But I think the Facebook thing is particularly interesting because it changes fundamentally what you, how you communicate in some way. So like, if there's this world of infinite content brand choices and blah, one of the ways you can negotiate or navigate it is collaborative filtering, looking at what your friends do and seeing then you know, if you want to, you like your friends, you get their taste and opinions, so kind of if they did it, maybe you want to be having a look in, you know, that sort of thing. And what Facebook's genius um, functionality was, it wasn't the pages, it's the, the news feed. The news feed is genius, because it broadcasts your social actions to your networks, and it's closed. It's only your friends that can see what you're doing. But it's sort of saying, you know, um, I did this, I looked at that, and if that, and this and that, incorporates some sort of brand interaction, that's in some way a qualified referral. And I, I think, that the way they're trying to monetize it now is interesting. It may work, it may not. But um, that kind of social action model of communication is really powerful, I think. Mm -hmm. you know, kind of what I'm actually doing rather than you know, what my friend's doing. But. Yeah, I mean, we're definitely seeing a lot of Facebook activity. Like, it's just it's the next big thing so far as like, the extra little thing that you throw in the package. Mm -hmm. Like, yeah, we can also do this, and it will reach people in Facebook this way. Facebook yeah. 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 <laughs> um, And I mean, I think more to, you know, to answer your question, I mean, like, I think, you know, you you get these brands who before they sort of make that leap at this point to accepting user-generated content, they, they put their feelers out and they figure out, you know, okay, well, what are people already saying? You know, like, what's the worst that we can expect from opening ourselves up to this? And how can we inoculate ourselves against it before we sort of go that route? It's like, um, you know, like if our brand is, comes from sweatshops, okay, our next campaign is about how we're not doing that anymore and how we've changed and then then we'll go and we'll as see. As long as they actually say. change, obviously. Right. Well, <laughs> Otherwise, and that's, that would be bad. Yeah. And that's the other thing, and this goes back to what you were saying earlier, is like, you know, the, the real crux of it all is like, to be able to sort of talk about the bad things that people are saying, you need to be sort of limber enough to actually do something about it. Like, you need to sort of yeah. be able to change your entire infrastructure to address these problems. And before you can, you know, get your company or your brand to a place where that's possible, there's really nothing you can do about it, the bad news. You know? So, because like, I mean, it's criticism, you know. And if you don't take it as constructive criticism, then you're just putting it out there as bad advertising, bad word of mouth. So, and I think, I think, I feel like that's sort of the way people need to start looking at it a little bit more than they already are. You know? It's like, you know, you can't just you can't just be the way that you are and have everything change around you. You need to be able to change with it and. Mm -hmm predict how it's going to change and be a step ahead of the curve. Is there, I think we have a really good question about uh, how agencies reconcile the idea that young sought-after audiences are the most resistant. Um, I, I always talk about this being um, one of the most interesting misconceptions about the youth market. I mean, engaging with them every day, I think they don't like dumb advertising. I think they don't like being talked down to. Mm -hmm. Um, they're very smart. They understand what's going on. I think even more than I did, you know, what they have access to. They, they know advertising. They know that we're talking about them 24-7. So I really think it's such a misconception to feel that we are over-marketing or getting over on them. I mean, they know what's going on, and I think that what they like is, is smart engagement and things that help them. Do something that I want. Make my life easier. Yeah. That's really what I want. I don't care that you're selling me a cheeseburger. Are you making my life easier? Is you know, we had a big discussion um, 
did some research um, with high school students and brands like the Coca-Colas of the world who buy the machines in their schools. And you know, a couple years ago, there was this big outcry. This is right. terrible. And you know what the kids said to me? Are you kidding me? The fact that this company is doing this means I don't have to sell another stupid entertainment book or candy bar to raise money to play basketball. I can just play basketball. Mm. You know, it's like, it just makes my life easier. And they're very much consumed at that age as well they should be. It's me. It's what I want, what I need. And so I think that we kind of make this idea that they care maybe about us a little bit more yeah. than they do. And it's like, are you making my life easier? Like with Deli, are you providing me with financial tips on my mobile phone that makes my life easier? Mm -hmm. If you are, then I want to have a discussion Absolutely. with you. You're right. I mean, uh, the no logo thing in 2000 triggered this sort of backlash that we, we kind of hate ourselves intrinsically as advertisers to a degree. I don't know about you, like I come from a place where I grew up idolizing Bill Hicks, and he has very specific advice for people who work in marketing, that you should commit suicide immediately, because you despoil the culture and the world and everything's good and true. So I came from that position almost, and I don't think it's true, and I think we can do things, we have at our disposal or we can influence the spending of large amounts of money yeah. that can be genuinely beneficial to the world, to people, to stuff. I don't think it necessarily is cultural pollution. I think it's helpful to start from a standpoint saying, what am I delivering? What's the value I'm giving? Rather than, can I just twist your brain a little bit to make you buy some sneakers? But if you're selling Tide, which is, which is detergent, I mean, mm -hmm. does, it, does it need to be kept with a social, you know, some sort of social justice cause? Why do my buying, if I were a college student or moving out of the dorm into my real life and have to, or washing my clothes for the first time, why can't you give me the top five tips on how to mm. not turn your white clothes black? Or a laundrette. Yeah, or right. what you need to know, you know? And so I think that there is a point to where information is key. I mean, there are certain things that we need to find out every day. You know, I'm not, I, I mean, I use CBS, sorry, but I, I still don't understand the things I'm doing with finance. And if I want to be smart, I think that's why women listen to Suze Orman. Absolutely. It's because she makes you not feel stupid about having right. questions. I mean, that's why P&G can get tween girls to go to, have you ever seen beinggirl.com? Do you know what that is? It's a site for, for girls where they talk about what's going on with my body, which is not something they sit around talking about at 12. And it's very scientific. I mean, they have a, partner with, a partnership with Sony BMG, so they get cool music videos. But really, they go on to find doctors telling them what's happening to them. It is not cool, but it is information, and it has such huge ratings because it's something that they need to know. Absolutely. And the fact that always in Tampax is involved. I mean, those aren't brands that people normally want to have discussions about, but it's information. And so, you know, I think that's really getting to the heart of what young people want. Are you telling me something I need to know? If it's five, wait, five things I need to know about my car, if it's a woman, five things you need to know about taking care of your automobile, sponsored by Nissan. You know, I think that's the exchange, at least that I'm seeing that young people want. Yeah, they absolutely, they, I, I couldn't agree more. They, it's a simple, give it to me, make it relevant, and then I will act on it. But I also, it kind of, I get a little chuckle and resisted to big corporate advertising. I had 11 and an eight-year-old, and, um, you know, they are so brand-centric in terms of what they, you know, the clothes, the this, and, you know, the particular, you know, I, how are they? They're not being resistant. Yeah. I, I think that they're more skeptical because I think they're more educated sometimes about things they want. I mean, as they're saying, they're, 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 no, they're more knowledgeable about what it is because they have a better infiltration of, of knowledge that's come their way and they're, be, they're, they're, they're becoming savvy enough to sift through it mm -hmm. that what is proverbially the, PS, the BS and what is the, um, hey, this is relevant for me. I think and, that's such a good word. Instead of saying they're resistant, I think they are cynical. They're skeptical, they're savvy, but they know what brands yeah. they want. Absolutely. I think it's still because brands are established cultural reference, and so they can perform all these kind of 
Maslow hierarchical upper point needs, like identity construction and display and, you know, all kinds of stuff that you can't have unless you have socially recognized ideas around what brands mean, and so they kind of are useful reference in that sense. They're just part of the, the landscape, you know, and it's not like we can sort of, maybe we should go back to the 60s and all be hippies and say brands are bad and stuff, but like, it's not gonna happen, and the world has moved on from that point, I think, and you know, there's mm -hmm. a more forthright, intelligent way to have this discussion, I suppose, about, you know, the interaction of youth and brands and how... And it's how they define themselves yeah, at that exactly. time when they're looking for a definition of who they are. I mean, and we talk a lot, we do a lot of brand loyalty research, and I always come down to the client and say, find a 16-year-old boy, tell him to wear no-name sneakers. Is that really going to happen? They're totally <laughs> defined on if they have on Converse or the new Jordans. Especially, you know, when you really drill down to is a brand important, they're defined by what's on their feet. Girl, you know, what they're carrying, what they're talking on. It's, it's so much a big, loyal, you know, brand stamp. That's why, I don't know if you've seen Blip.com. I thought one of the most interesting things they did when launching this, this Condé Nast site is they allowed users to choose the advertisers to put on their page. So when you're building your page, you can say, That's very cool. you know, oh, I'd like to have the Brass Plum logo, or Neutrogena is cool. Okay, this is the ad that can be suited to my taste. So I think it's also bringing in that creative element, and, and brands are important to people at that age. So okay. in the spirit of, oh, sorry, no. Oh, no, I was just like, at, at the risk of oversimplifying, I think it's just sort of like, it's just, being able to talk to people on, on their level and communicating with them the way that they communicate with each other and you know just giving them something that whether or not they find it useful they'll at least it, it's sort of like it's what they want and it's sort of it flows really well with what they're already doing and it works the same way with I think with TV as with with the internet stuff is like I know the most fun and most satisfying stuff that I've done with Barbarian has been stuff that's focused towards like the Adult Swim audience you know because it's it's very easy for me to sort of think like <laughs> me. Yeah. So, <laughs> but it, so like I know what I want out of this advertising and I'm gonna have a lot of fun giving it to basically my peer group, you know, and sort of, I mean, that's a nice case because it jives real well with me as, as it is, but like being able to sort of put yourself in that mindset, like I think that's, there's a lot of mileage to get yeah. out of that. Mm -hmm. Just yeah. sort of giving people what they're already getting, just, you know, a different little bit of that. In the spirit of moving on and having a discussion, I'd like to open it up to, to the floor if anyone has any questions. Mark, would you like to go first? <laughs> just give it, yeah. Can I ask you just, the, just, just to stand up? Yeah, sure. Uh, Mark Davis, Yahoo. So, Ferris, I'll take up your, your offer with a comment and a question. <laughs> Before I came here, I was at the social marketing mashup with P&G, Coca-Cola, Starbucks, Verizon, MySpace, Yahoo. And it was all about word-of-mouth marketing. All of the major brands are saying, what do we do? How do we deal with social media? And, and I think this panel has been excellent because I think you've really identified a lot of the key components. And it's basically two types of conversations which traditionally advertising isn't involved in. The conversation between the brand and, and the consumer and the conversation between consumers as participants. Mm -hmm. And supporting those two types of conversations in happening. Like the example of choosing the ads on the site is a great, a great example. So well, the question I have for you guys is given the creative muscle and intellect and, and work that you all do, which you know, all of us enjoy, are you rethinking how to position what you do to support those types of conversations between brands and the people that they want to be, well, the people that they are now being forced to be in dialogue with, and then specifically the conversations that happen around the water cooler and which are happening increasingly online about brand and buying decisions, right? So that's, and 
at Yahoo, that's a lot of what my work now is focused on too, is how do we support those conversations between people that relate to expression of brand identity, transmission of brand identity and choice, mm -hmm. buying decisions in ways that we're seeing on Facebook and other places as well. So the question is, how do you position your work, not just as advertisers, but advertising, marketing, sales, and product development for the brands that you work with, to create ways to support conversations between brands and, and users and between users? That's the question. Um, I, I, that's a great, great question. I think it's a, I, there's a lot of things there, I guess, which is kind of how do we position ourselves as an industry and as our agencies, and we all have different agency models on this table that kind of mm. allow us in different senses to not default to making big TV spots necessarily. Um, I think in terms of supporting, one of the things that I am most interested in, I guess, is how you measure this and how you look at this sort of stuff. And so traditionally, there are two kinds of metrics, I suppose, in advertising or communications. There's kind of uh, evaluative metrics based around financial return on some form of investment. It has to be a financial return. It can't just be a marketing objective because you're investing money to make money. And these sort of cognitive measures of what do you think about X and did you see X and do you recall X, which to my mind are almost useless um, or worthless anyway because they don't dictate future behavior. In between, you have these behavioral metrics. Um, which is kind of where the social media becomes so powerful, because now we can see what people are actually doing with what we do. Mm. So to give the example of um, uh, the Sony stuff, by saying, look, we can give you the assets and the tools to propagate this content we generate, please go and do it, and then we'll see if people do. And then kind of invent some new kinds of metrics, um, which are really easy to implement, but you like to give big names to, because then clients think they're cooler. Um, I call one brand accessions and one brand transmissions, which is um, accessions, people reaching towards the brand, so you do some stuff, people Google your brand name more or your, you know, your campaign idea more, and that's kind of a good idea that people are sort of interested in it. And one which is transmissions, and that usually we do with blogs because they're, okay, not representative of the entire population of the world, but they're a good indication of conversations that are happening around what you're doing. And so trying to First of all, yeah, put things in place that allow that to happen and then monitor if it is happening. It's kind of how we're trying to move clients away from more traditional ways of evaluating the effect of what they're doing, I suppose. Um, I guess I'm in an interesting position because I, there's a part of me that's a marketer and there's the other part of me that's a trend analyst and all I do is research and sit with the market. And so it's funny you talk about product development because that's one thing this year that we actually got into. Um, you know, I'll give you an example. I've been doing a lot of research with tweens, um, under, helping clients understand what is a tween, who are they, are they 7 to 12, are they 8 to 13, are they 7 to 14, what do they want? It's the most emerging and interesting demographic, I really believe, because you've got kids who control so much because of the technology divide with their parents, where they're now teaching their parents how to do things, therefore giving them more control in a household than I probably had with my parents and saying, Mom, just go online and go, oh, you want to buy a new car? Okay, I Googled and here's five different ones and I just printed everything out for you. It, it creates a very different landscape when you're the parent that's like, I'm the boss, I have the knowledge, I'm in charge, where the kid's like, yeah, but I just totally reprogrammed your ducks, you have no clue what's going on. You know, how do you counterbalance that? So, you know, an interesting topic came up a while ago with content, with parents saying to me, Tina, there's nothing for my child to read between Beacon Street Girls, which is for a 68-year-old, and Gossip Girls. And my 10-year-old can't read Gossip Girls. And so 
for me, the reaction was sitting with this research and this information and realizing there's nothing there, we went and developed it. So we've got a property launching with HarperCollins in 2009 called The Adventures of Mackenzie Blue about a very cool group of, you know, nine, 12 year olds and actually it might be coming out in a totally different form in the UK, which I just found out yesterday. So I think that's part of what we are starting to do is to realize so much of this is coming from parents and the consumers and I think that our model's a little you know, we joke about it in my office of how the model of how we create products here in this country is very backwards, I think. It's like we make it and then we go and see if they like yeah, it. Yeah. Versus I think, especially from a lot of what we do with our global research, it seems our global partners, you know, I remember working on Verizon on the launch of FreeUp when I was still in college, which I don't know if you know, it's this prepaid cell phone brand. And it, the whole idea was that you, you prepay and it didn't make sense. and. We did all of this research and came back to them. And, and at the time, a person who was a fellow at my company came from Philips in, in France. And when she talked to me about the way they did it, I mean, the research is unbelievable, down to profiles of people and, and amuse me and what they want. And so before they even made a phone, they knew every single thing that four different types mm -hmm. of consumers would want in that phone. And it was unbelievable to me. And so I think that part of the shift that has to happen is as marketers, we have to listen more and stop just going making things and marketing the heck out of them and thinking they will want this so, versus sitting down and saying, maybe they don't. Maybe things have changed in a way to where, you know, this concept of going green, people are like, oh, it's such a passing thing. Now you've got 12-year-olds that know it means and understand their social responsibility. They're going to be raised in an environment where they expect things from brands that have never been expected before. Yeah. So now you've got everyone throwing green symbols everywhere. Oh, just put it on there. Oh, people are health conscious. Just make me something green. It's like we're running around and becoming so reactionary. And I think what needs to happen is when we talk about how do you engage with consumers, it's how do you listen and stop over-marketing. It's like, we want to listen to you, but right here on you know this little blog area, just email us here and we'll listen there. But on 98%, we're marketing to you, but we're listening. And I, I think so I think the first thing that has to happen is that we truly listen, that we truly stop marketing things and say, do you really want that? Why do all these shows fail? Because we're not listening to what people want to watch. We'll go back to what marketing actually is, which is understanding and then providing for right. current and future exactly. consumer needs, which is not selling stuff. It's yeah. But. Well, and it's also an art and a science. And I think a lot of times, sometimes we forget the science, and we all are just passionate about the art and don't realize that the first part is understanding the science of what do people really want from us, and then how do we create that, and then package it and have a discussion and communicate to them mm -hmm. in a way that they understand what we're creating for them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think that's, I mean, that's really very true, and it's, it's really frustrating for a company like us where, like, a lot of times, you know, the most that we can do is just strongly suggest that they do something, you know? Yeah. And, like, you know, most of the time they've already got it figured out, so at least in their minds it's figured out. You know, they come to us with the brief, and it's like, this is who we want, and this is what we've got to give them, and this is, yeah. you know, these are the points we need to hit on. And, like, yeah, I mean, we're going to try and make it, as much as we can make it more if possible, but a lot of times they're just sort of like, yeah, you know, that's just not really what we're up to right now. Yeah. Like, you know, you can only tell somebody the same thing so many times before you know they're not listening anymore. Mm -hmm. and that's, mm -hmm. you know, and it goes back to like, how much do they really want that dialogue to be open? You know, mm -hmm. it's like, are people really ready for <clears throat> an actual, truly open conversation <laughs> with their? you know, their demographic, and usually the answer so far seems to be no. Yeah. And that's, it's a drag, and like, but you know, you do what you can, you know, you, you make a good case for it, you bring them the information, and you say, look, 
you hired us for a reason. Like this is what we this is what we're seeing. This is what we can do. We really hope you are cool with that. <laughs> <laughs> Baba, do you want to get in here? Yeah. Uh, so, so the uh, the agency structure question. So, uh, so my agency, uh, Hill Holiday, has been around for uh, almost thirty years, and uh, it's interesting to see that the agency model has kind of um, followed kind of this route of of, um, of efficiency over time, and I would say efficiency against against the creation and purchasing of standardized media units, mm. and the standardized. Uh, media units were identifiable and well understood, and and they became um, the the basis of transactions between clients and media companies and agencies. So, um, lots of things happen. You know, uh, efficiencies got squeezed out. And well, what does a media planner do? What does a creative do? How does creative get produced? Um, and um, you know, in the in the 80s and 90s, there started to become this 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 uh, phenomenon in the industry of unbundling, of pulling mm -hmm. away the media thinking away from the creative thinking. Mm -hmm. And this makes perfect sense mm -hmm. in a world where it is uh, it is all about standardized media units because it, it really doesn't matter. It's a 30 second spot is a 30 second spot, or it could be a 60, um, which is the big difference, right? <laughs> so, um, but. Um, but that made perfect sense because the, the efficiency to be gained was having large pools of money to buy lots of standardized units. So now um, it's, a, it's a very different landscape. It is a landscape of non-standardized media units. Mm -hmm. And it is a landscape in which the media and the, and the message are oftentimes just, you know, tease apart the subservient chicken media and message, right? It's, it's just the thing. And um, it's actually media that Burger King created. Um, so, so our uh, agency, uh, one of the reasons I, I came to Hill Holiday from Fallon was I like the idea that there's a traditional uh, media organization still bundled with a creative organization. And in part of my discussions with, with Hill Holiday and coming over, I, I really wanted to exploit that and say, okay, well, what can you do with that? And, and what if you put uh, digital capabilities with that and you, you um, uh, hired smart people from Henry's program, like Ilya Vodrashko, who's uh, sitting uh, in the audience, uh, and um, and kind of started to think about what the possibilities were of getting the most out of out of those pieces being together. But even with that with that uh, happening, and so you know, I have the advantage of uh, my office. I share a wall with our chief creative officer. So uh, you know, he he uh, used to be the chief creative officer on Microsoft, and 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 just thought about. You know, buying lots of, you know, this was before Microsoft was all about online advertising, and just like uh, buying large quantities of, uh, of, of standardized media units. But we're talking a lot now about what else is possible and what we should be doing. But the other piece of this is I think is really important. When I was at Forrester, um, there was a, th a thread of research that was written for a little while about what happens to corporate structure when, um, when uh, communications technologies allow kind of easy, um, easy kind of uh, connections between companies for uh, temporary periods of time on a given task, right? And they kind of called this idea hyper-partnering, this notion of just, you know, you just come together, you have these different kind of collections of talents and people, and you come together, and then, and then um, your need is finished and you, and you um, disassemble. And I think that's kind of the landscape in, in marketing services right now, mm -hmm. right? So there could be a program that is um, very focused on uh, mobile mapping, 
and um, out of home video uh, ad networks, right? And you kind of, you, you have the concept and you have the notion that this could help this client and you assemble those kinds of capabilities. And you know, Naked and I know Barbarian Group and maybe, maybe you guys work this way as well, but you, you, um, you know, you, you work with, with teams that come together for kind of a, a given uh, need in this kind of non-standardized uh, media landscape and then, and then you disassemble and you go off. Uh, in your separate ways, but um, the the thing that I think is the is the most problematic. I think the people uh, who are most threatened right now, I, I would say, are the the largest uh, agencies, which are uh, very siloed, very discipline focused, um, who have been used to doing everything for a client and don't have that kind of um, that characteristic of even even seeking any outside. Um, collaborative help for, for the things that they do. Is there another question? Hi, David Schiffman from AOL. Can I just get you to stand up, sir? Okay. Thank you. Um, my question is, you talk about uh, conversations between users and between brands and users. There's been no discussion, although you just mentioned something recently about what's going on internationally. There are different cultural norms, uh, and if brands are cultural representations of of and, and um, symbols by which we communicate. How do those differ culturally, and then how do those conversations differ culturally? And as an example, say in Japan, the whole concept of saving face, do people save face online or not, or, or do they act more like Americans? Um, if you could speak to some of that, that would be great, thanks. Well, well I can jump in, because I, I lived for five years in Japan and five years in Latin America and two years in Hong Kong, and there are, it is, um, each culture is different. I mean, there, I went through that horrible period, but this is when I was working on Procter & Gamble business where they were uh, trying to standardize, you know, a wonderful client in many ways, but trying to standardize commercials around the world. And they took this successful French Camay ad that they went through Europe with, with this woman in suds and her husband caressing her shoulder and, and insisted we put it on air in Japan. And, um, the hate mail that everybody got because that was the equivalent of basically a brothel would have this kind of thing. I mean, in Japan, you don't even put suds in the tub. I mean, it, it's just one of those cultural problems you have there. And I think that was just, this was the, the <coughs> mid-80s, late-80s that this was going on. And I think that the world has come quite much further in terms of understanding that you do have to be cultural specific when you're doing advertising. I think what what companies are getting better at, but they're still not quite there, is understanding that the brand doesn't stand for execution, but stands for what it believes in, what is its, what is its mission, what, do you, what is its brand character, if you will. Mm -hmm. And then taking that, and, and how does that translate into each of the different cultures by which you're advertising, not just putting a different voice track on a commercial, not just changing out the typeface into you know, to Sanskrit or into, you know, or something there and saying, okay, this doesn't make any sense. So, uh, you know, in, in Latin America, I mean, even recognizing that what you would say, I mean, I went through this horrible experience with, with aerial detergent, which is the tide outside the U.S., where um, they, this when they were, the, the color fast um, detergents where you weren't uh, losing the color, uh, they had this thing called quita palusa, which is basically take little fuzz balls off but in Mexican Spanish, it means 
you know, cutting your testicles off, and you know, <laughs> and, and I'm like, you know, I, I speak Spanish, and this won't work, and you know, there's just this cultural sensitivities that are going on there, and I was like, go ahead, put it in a focus group, you know, they're, they're all, <laughs> it was great. I mean, sometimes you have to let the some folks make the mistakes to learn what they needed to go forward. So, I, you know, I think that advertisers are getting much better at it. I still think that as quick as our dynamic in the U.S. is changing, it's changing in other cultures as well, too, and keeping on top of that is, 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 is very hard. Um, you know, we are, particularly if it's led by an American-based group where we're really very cultural and sensitive in terms of we think everyone speaks English, we think everyone thinks like us first until we get out there and understand that isn't necessarily the case. So. Um, I think we're going to see more and more of it because the web and everything we do online is bringing things together more closely. Oh, got the sign off over there. But, um, but you know, I, I, it, it is, I, I think that's probably worth another forum to get through how folks discuss how we, how we and because we, and that isn't even just touching the multicultural dynamic of the U.S. in terms of what happens here and in the, you know, in, but just to say that we, you know, I don't think that we're sensitive enough to it. And, uh, but I think that we're getting more and more conscious of the fact that we have to take an active stance. I would say I, I have PNG as a client now and consult the very sexy FemCare division. Um, and one thing that's interesting is what you're saying is I think they're understanding the need for this discussion. It's, it's a global cause. And what was so fascinating when you're sitting in a room with people that work for P&G and FemCare from all over the world is, you know, a brand that's not always or compacts here is Naturella in, in Latin America and how they really are realizing that they've got to kind of create products and marketing now that speak directly to, to these different cultures and how Western Europe is even different from how they're now marketing to Eastern Europe. And, you know, I think they're getting it. And I think that part of it, what we were doing as kind of my mindset marketing exercise is helping them understand the mindsets and, you know, for instance, what they're doing here in the U.S., the Bean Girl stuff. BeanGirl.com um, is actually right now in 18 different languages. And if you go to BeanGirl.com, what's so fascinating is the site is not the same. Every single language has a different site, a different look, a different feel. So for them, I think that's very out of the, out of the box of where they have that's traditionally huge. been and what they're doing there and, and how they're talking. And really, it's the conversation we have to have, what's appropriate to talk about. And even for them, it was the case study internally of how they got to calling the brand Naturella in Latin America. And it went, I mean, from when it was introduced, it's now the number one SKU there, which is huge, mm -hmm. you know, just really based on the fact of what they knew going in, so doing the research. And I think that they've probably been burned enough mm -hmm. to know that now it's, you have to be, right. you know, doing this type of thing. Uh, we have time for one, for one more. Is it, yep. Hi. Um, it's on. Um, Diana Kimball. I'm from Harvard. Um, so, Tina, it sounds like your company is so interesting because it's basically fulfilling a need that companies really feel, which is we have to address this market. How do we do it? And you're responding to their fear with um, really interesting solutions. So a lot of what I'm hearing is that um, the most important thing is to have really good creatives and really good research in the agencies. Where do you go to look for that talent? Well, I'll jump in there. I don't know that there's any one place that you look for this talent, uh, particularly for folks starting off. It's, uh, I, I, I've seen great strategists come from you know, psychology, sociology backgrounds. I've seen it just from folks who've worked in another industry. I've seen it from engineers. It really is those folks that when you, you, you that 
honestly have this desire from a research and, and strategy perspective. They, they just have this innate desire to understand customer and, and realize that they don't know, that they're investigative. They're almost, they, they want to understand what's out there. And, and, and they, want, they want to look at it different ways. They never feel like they ever have their answer because the answer is constantly changing. That seems to be the DNA for me for who's been very good along those lines. And, but I guess there's a misnomer that they come from a particular area. They don't. They come from all different ways. They come from all different kinds of industry. They come from... Um, you know, from marine, I've had a marine biologist work for, uh, for me once. That was what their education was in, and they just, they just groomed themselves and just in their investigative work in terms of from a strategy. And, you know, the others can probably spoke, speak more from the creative, but the creative teams as well. I mean, clearly, you know, art direction, they may have had some very good training in art design, but it isn't just training in art design per se, but it's, okay, they've got to combine that knowledge of understanding, you know, what is it in terms of the customer you know, insight and, 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 and knowledge bank there versus just creating on their own. They have to create for others and create for what they think others are like. I totally agree. I think in terms of planners and strategists, um, there is a mindset, I suppose, which has been that constantly curious thing. Having kind of a two f a feet in both the scientific analytical camp and the creative camp, we can sort of translate in between the two because you've got to turn business imperatives into creative briefs in some ways. That's kind of important. I think with creatives, it's really interesting what's happening with creatives right now. Something is changing dramatically, in my opinion, about traditionally creatives in our business are people from art school. In fact, they always are people from art school. You get a copywriter and you get a, an art director, and that's how it's been since time immemorial. That's breaking down so massively. So I was in South Africa two weeks ago at this conference, and there's the group creative head at Saatchi's, Saatchi's interactive division called At Play, and he's a computer programmer. He's a 20-year programming coder who's a creative because... I think increasingly technologists are the creatives that will be defining the industry in the next X amount of time. I think making pictures and design is really important as a skill set, but it's just one of the skill sets. And increasingly, being able to make things will be a creative kind of pillar of the industry. I think it's interesting that you kind of notice that that's part of my job is translating. I'm always translating between what consumers are telling me they want and what the companies are telling me they need to do. And so. What I, I think I'm most interested to see is, it seems at least from, from my point of view, I always work for agencies, you know, doing what I do. I either work for the client directly or I work for an agency that works for the client. And it seems like sometimes research is an afterthought. And I think now that we're all entering a landscape that we don't quite understand, that we don't know what to do with it, I'm now noticing that the conversation with either internal research folks or people like myself is becoming a conversation that's more important now. I think normally it's like, we go here, we do our ad thing, we make our ads, and then we'll go focus group them. Yeah. yeah, well, I feel like now it's like, we don't know what anybody's doing. <laughs> Just tell us, tell us, tell us, tell us. Yeah. And so I think it's really exciting because I don't think that, I mean, advertising and creative is sexy. Like, telling someone that 42% of consumers like something or don't is not necessarily <laughs> a very sexy thing to do. You know, now it is. Everybody needs to know this information. So I think that that's a good point of realizing that creatives are coming from and researchers. You know, we've got something internally called the Buzz Youth Institute, where we've got, a I call it our network of youth intelligence, everything from cultural anthropologists to, you know, a senior makeup artist at MAC, because that person's really important in translating color. What colors are big? You know, where are people going? What, so I think it's now becoming this creative consortium of realizing that the typical definition, I guess what we're saying, of researcher is changing. Mm. You know, because now the idea behind research is you study culture, you study the effects that things have on culture and where it's going. And it, because it's not coming from one place, you've got to understand what's going on. You know, I always talk about iPod and how everyone thinks the trend is that 
100 iPods are sold. And I said, no, for me, the trends are the effects. It's the effects that now consumers, a, a, a term I coined called mass exclusivity. Everyone has this idea now that we can all own the same product and it's customized to what I want. How does mass exclusivity play out when you're marketing cars, when you're marketing jeans? It's now something that consumers live with. So I think when we're talking about research and even all of our jobs, I think now we have to be researchers. It's Absolutely. like now we're in this place of like we have to understand things that we probably haven't had to understand before. Um, I, think, I think talent, uh, it's a great question, it can, can come from anywhere. I think that in addition to kind of the standard uh, screens you would have for people, um, uh, you know, they've got to be, they have to have good hygiene, they have to be hard workers, <laughs> all that. Um, I think one of the things about advertising marketing people is they've always, they always have to be kind of of the culture, of the, of the culture that you're trying to um, be a part of. And that's been true when it was an art director and a copywriter, and I think it's true now when it's a technologist or somebody who lives um, online and just kind of, um, you know, uh, uh, lives through a mobile device or whatever it is, you're, you're, you're trying to find um, people who can be very sympathetic with the, uh, with the audiences that you're trying to connect with. So um, I think uh, that, that's actually been the attraction, I think, for a lot of young people for this kind of, this kind of an industry is this is some place where, you know, I, I remember the first, I actually started off in product development at BMW. I had nothing to do with, with uh, advertising. And, and, I, and I was hired at... Uh, uh, I, I was actually promoted to the position of the um, media director. So I had the, the um, close to $100 million um, BMW budget, and my job was to help with the agency allocated. And I asked the head of marketing why he kind of wanted me to do that. And he said, because you know, um, you know what CDs are selling. And, uh, you know, back when they sold CDs. Uh, <laughs> that's not that problem. And, and I, I think that's, that's, that's probably a, a constant here is that whatever's going on, you've you got to be plugged in. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. I mean, I don't think I have a great answer to this question that hasn't already said. I mean, I think, you know, being of the culture is really key. And it's different for, for every department within our company who's going to be doing hiring. Everybody's looking for something different, but it's always it's going to line up with something that already exists, you know, sort of like something we have an understanding of that we can relate to this person, you know, through. And, you know, so for like, for the creatives, it's, you know, do you understand what we're up to and are you of the mindset that will help you sort of, you know, work really well with what's already going on here? Mm -hmm. um, whereas from like a strategy point, you know, it seems like, I mean, this is out of my jurisdiction, but it seems like those guys look a little bit more at like, you know, what, what have you been doing elsewhere? You know, like what's, you know, it's far more sort of credential based at that point. You know, who's been doing really cool things and how can we sort of bring them into the fold to do cool things for us, you know? But again, all coming from the same sort of mindset that we already have. I think it also kind of explains why creatives tend to not grow up and why we're creatives and why the industry seems to focus on youth is because the most obvious expression of culture is youth culture. And creatives are encouraged to wear trainers into their 50s and not kind of act like grown-ups because then they're less perceived as being able to understand what culture's about. So it kind of has a sort of, yeah, looping kind of thing that happens. It's funny, we have like the, the guys in the creative team who call themselves the old guys in their early 30s. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah exactly. Uh, lunch is in the lobby. So uh, I'd like to end on this note that, that makes a call for both research but also creativity because um, I think that's nice for us. So if we could take a minute to thank the panelists.
and uh, we'll see you after lunch.